Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. You will be hearing another Japanimation Station Spectacular, actually the season finale of Japanimation Station for the year, as we are uh, finishing up our Full Metal Alchemist series by talking about the final animated movie, The Sacred Star of Milos, and the three live-action movies on Netflix, which are unqualified cinematic masterpieces, and we're so excited to talk about them with you. And are definitely anime. Yes. Well... They're definitely, they definitely count as anime. They're based on anime? Actually, they're based on manga. So, you know, a little off the beaten path, but why not? It'll be fun. They'll be fun to talk about. Uh, but before that, have a little bit of stuff that we want to share. Sean, what have you been up to? How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, the main thing I've been doing, and I know that you've played a little bit of this also, is uh, the Modern Warfare 2 Here We Go Again uh, campaign is playable. They've done a weird thing where if you pre-order the game, the campaign is available like one week before the rest of the game comes out. And so I like it. I kind of think yeah. it's a... Because what they're doing is they have the... Yeah, you have the campaign for a week, which I think is fun because you get to just play the campaign, get to yeah. know the guns and stuff. And then there will be multiplayer. But they're also staggering. So like the first full season doesn't start until December. So there's like a pre-season. And then they're adding Warzone. So they're not dumping it all at once, which I think is probably smart. Yes. Um, so that means that if you've pre-ordered the game, you can play the campaign now. Um, and so I think I'm actually pretty close to the end. You know, it's a Call of Duty campaign, so it's not super long. Um, but it's I think it's very good so far in the same way. It is very like the last one. It is good in that it is a really well-designed thing to play. The levels are good. It's got a lot of interesting concepts for every level tends to have a unique kind of gimmick or something, some kind of gameplay mechanic that they put in there that's fun. Um, but the story is the stupidest shit you have ever seen in your entire life. Um, even stupider, <laughs> I would say, than the last one. Um, uh, in a way that I can almost get more behind it with just how incredibly dumb it is. Like That's how I, there I have feel. been there have been some lines of dialogue that might be some of the stupidest dialogue I've ever heard in my entire fucking life that I've heard playing this campaign. Um, and. Yeah, that, that's my overall review. Is It is incredibly dumb in a story sense, but it is very fun to play. It's a blast to play. I'm not as far as you are. I'm probably, like, I looked at the level list. I'm maybe a third of the way through. Mm -hmm. I haven't had a ton of time to play it so far because I've had some other games that I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, but, like, I'm at the point where you're going to do the uh, all gillied up part two level, yes. basically. The yeah, that's a great level. Yeah, all gillied up redux. This What's kind of funny is that this game does way more recreations of stuff from the original Modern Warfare than the last Modern Warfare did. Like, a bunch of the levels are just straight sort of, like, sequels to levels in the original Call of Duty 4. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, yeah. I mean, the plot of this game, and I'm sure it gets even sillier, is that Iran is sponsoring terrorists who are working with the Mexican cartel. And so there's a point in the game where you are fighting the Mexican cartel as they try to smuggle basically an Osama bin Laden-style terrorist over the Texas border into the United States to do a terror attack, which I think is what Fox News like preaches about in the weeks leading up to an election to try to scare white people. Yeah, and that's, that is the specific dynamic of the story that is like phenomenally dumb, 
is the whole concept of the <laughs> quote unquote terrorists, right? The middle, like it's, it's that, that right wing fantasy of here's like the middle Eastern quote unquote terrorists. Here we have like the Mexican drug cartel and drug people. And what if they're working together is basically the, the stupid <laughs> fucking question that this game asks. Um, and these, the dumbest line of dialogue is the line of dialogue. There's one line a character gives you that explains from the cartel's perspective, the reasoning behind which they're, uh, why they are working with the terrorists. And it is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my fucking life. And I can't wait for you to get there, Jonathan. Um, I'm, I'm so excited. It's, I mean, here's the thing. I would guess that the story for this game was very reverse engineered from what levels they wanted to make because mm -hmm. like it, and I mean, that's how a lot of first person shooters are, but like they wanted to have fun levels in Mexico. Mexico is a cool place to have shooter levels. There's a whole level where you're running through the mountains. It's awesome. It's a great level. Yeah. Um, but like, how do you connect that with your other modern warfare shit? I don't know. Iran terrorists, Mexican drug cartel. Let's do it. It's, I mean, there's honestly, Sean, something almost comforting about, about it being this dumb. It's like, okay, some things in the world make sense. Some things change. Call of Duty Modern Warfare will be the dumbest shit in the world in terms of story. And that's kind of comforting to me. Yeah. And, and overall, the game has, like, moved a little bit away from the, like, really intense, like, realism thing that the last one yes. went for. Um, which was cool for that game. But I think it, it helps make this story feel less gross even if it is equally or even more dumb like it it feels like it's a lot harder to take it seriously than modern warfare 2019 which felt like it wanted you to take the story extremely seriously because it and in a gameplay sense it did i think a good job of approaching this sort of more realistic depiction of modern warfare that is very kind of chaotic it's confusing and who isn't isn't an enemy is like something that's like an issue in that game and from a gameplay perspective, I think that game does it phenomenally well. From a narrative perspective, it tiptoes up to the edge of what it needs to get to with basically making America the bad guys and is not ever willing to commit to that. This game does a similar thing where it tiptoes up to the edge of understanding who the actual bad guys are. And it also does not, at least, you know, at this point, I think I have literally two levels left. Um, it has not committed, and I do not think it will commit in that way in the last two levels. <laughs> I would be shocked if it presented some sort of true self-awareness um but the fact that it doesn't um make that full leap doesn't bother me as much here as it did in the last game where it, it really kind of frustrated me a lot more and i think it's just because they have similar to the split between the original modern warfare and modern warfare 2 this game is much more big crazy action movie that happens to have a military theme um because all the cartel stuff is so not call of duty it's like it's not modern warfare it's like that's just not what modern warfare is isn't the cartel and drug smuggling and all the weird shit that goes on on that side and the original modern warfare 2 had a bunch of weird nonsense like that also that was so detached from the concept of war and warfare and modern warfare and all that and just was full in weird spy james Bourne or like jason Bourne style action bullshit um that it was impossible to take seriously versus the original call of duty 4 that edged more on the side of realism. And I would say this has like a similar split in that regard. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, the, <clears throat> the 2019 game had a sense that it wanted to tell a story about like the way people in the Middle East suffer from these conflicts. Mm -hmm. And I, I think some of that is actually handled pretty well. And I like those characters, but what it does is it lays the brunt of the blame at scary random Russians 
And it's not that Russians aren't doing terrible shit in the world. It's just that what it's pulling from is specifically like American sins. It's just pushing off to Russian characters, which is unconscionably cowardly. But I also, I have to say, I get the sense playing these new Modern Warfare games and from a couple years ago, Infinite Warfare, that I think the team at Infinity Ward could do the like politically interesting Call of Duty if they had free reign mm-hmm. i just don't think that's ever going to happen yeah. under like the corporate structure where you know these are the biggest games of every single year they're not gonna i don't know they're not gonna bite the hand that feeds them yeah it, yeah it would be foolish to expect them to rock the boat that much even if it would be awesome if they did because yeah because infinity word has been making great call of duty campaigns i mean basically forever but particularly in this modern era this new era of Call of Duty, this new era of Infinity Ward, since Infinite Warfare, they have just like knocked the campaign stuff out of the park. And this this game has a lot of that Infinite Warfare feel to me of every level really feels like it's designed around a core concept, um, which is fairly true of the last one as well. But this pushes it even further where there are a crazy number of like bespoke gameplay mechanics that only manifest basically at a single level. And then they move on to do something else in the next level. And that trend continues throughout the whole game. I think literally every single level has had something like that. Some of them are really huge and dominate the entire level. Some of them are smaller mechanics that are, you know, more kind of support the more standard, you know, stop and pop Call of Duty shooter gameplay stuff. But every level has something. There's no just like, and eh, here's just another Call of Duty campaign level. Um, that I felt like when I played the Treyarch campaigns, um, they tend to have that kind of, eh, this is just like another Call of Duty level. This is another Call of Duty level. All these levels feel very distinctive. Yeah, absolutely. It's also quite the graphical leap. I think we mm-hmm. saw that a little bit in the beta, but like the campaign is obviously going to be even more bespoke than any multiplayer levels. And it looks really good. Like yeah. it's just a, there's a lot of really great just assets and animations and lighting and all sorts of things i'm playing it you know 1080p on my gaming monitor um and it looks great in that form i'm sure 4k with hdr it looks great in that form but yeah and it runs great it's it's very good yeah and it has all the stuff you expect from these games in terms of like the sound design is still phenomenal all the animation work is incredible like the modeling on the firearms and stuff and just like the reload animations and the finicky mechanical nature of the firearms is very well realized and is interesting you know um it's it does stuff that like are really interesting little details like if you interrupt your reload animation what by sprinting instead of it just sort of like resetting the animation to the beginning if you have like say like you drop the magazine out of your rifle or whatever in the middle of that reload animation and then you start running before the character has put a new magazine in the model of the gun will continue to not have a magazine in it until you stop and resume that reload animation rather than it just resetting and like magically the magazine is back in the gun, then you stop and then you recycle the whole animation from the top. There's lots of really good little attention to detail pieces like that that the last game had lots of and using that as foundation, this game pushes even further. And there's something about that finicky nature of the game, that detail-oriented nature of the game that I really enjoy. Yeah. It's fantastic. I'm I am so excited for when the full multiplayer suite launches mm-hmm. because god, I just need it. I've been I mean my brother and I have been playing around in the uh last Modern Warfare. I did get it to work again on my Xbox. I think I told oh. the story of I had to download the whole thing, I had to transfer it, blah blah blah. Um but we've been having fun playing some of that and it's just like I can't wait because the little improvements that we saw just from the beta, I'm like missing going back and playing the 2019 one. So this is this is going to be good. I'm excited. 
other games I've been playing, I have two others I want to talk about briefly. One is another big sequel from uh, this month, which is the new Mario and Rabbids game. It's Mario plus Rabbids Sparks of Hope, which is on Switch. This was honestly one of my most anticipated games of the year because I loved the first one, Kingdom Battle, which was an early... We're at the point in the Switch's life cycle where we're getting sequels to all the early Switch games. So mm-hmm. we've got Breath of the Wild 2 coming out. We had Splatoon 3. We've got this. We've got Bayonetta 3. Uh, well, I guess Bayonetta 2 was a Wii game, but or Wii U game, but yeah. no one played it on the Wii U. So <laughs> it's a Switch game. Um, but anyway... And it's, I don't have a ton to say yet because I want to play more of it, but from what I've seen so far, this is much less of an iterative sequel than it is kind of a transformational sequel, and I think that has surprised me. It's a very different game. Like, the core gameplay is still a XCOM-inspired tactics game with Mario and the Rabbids, which is a ridiculous sentence to say, but I love it. I love that I can say that. Um, and so the, the basics are there, but they've just added a lot onto that. The they've even done they've done something in this game that I've never seen a tactics game do, but I think is really cool, which is that they've gotten there is probably mathematically a grid under the character's feet, but you don't see it anymore. You don't move on a grid. You just move the characters around in 3D space and navigate the the levels in an isometric perspective, and it's complete freedom on that level, and it feels just very immersive because of that, like the difference between overworld exploration and then the tactics gameplay. Um, and then they've added a bunch of things to the tactics gameplay. The titular Sparks of Hope are new little stars you get. This this whole game is very Mario Galaxy inspired. And there are different sort of powers you get for your characters. Like you can add fire to your weapons or water or electricity or you can have buffs. So it's it's a very deep gameplay system as the first one was but just made even richer. And then they've completely overhauled the overworld exploration. Because in Kingdom Battle it was basically linear... And the paths between big fights, you did different puzzles and exploration, but on a fairly linear path, and it was one fight to the next. Now it is a series of small open worlds where you go around and there are different battles scattered around. There's a lot of just smaller battles to do little grinding here and there that you can do. And you go around and solve puzzles, and it's all very non-linear. Um, and it's just a much, much, much bigger game. So overall, it's it's much more of an overhaul than I thought it would be. And it's extremely fun. I'm, I'm loving it. I still love the writing and everything. I am put off a little bit. Some characters, though not all, which is weird, have full voice acting now. Huh. And like your robot Beepo, which kind of makes sense. Because he's sort of like the main like voice of reason in the game who goes around and gives exposition. But like he has full voice acting. There's another AI lady who shows up. Once in a while, some other characters do, but a lot of them are still silent. They didn't make Mario and Luigi and Peach talk full-time, because that'd be weird. Um, but, like, the rabid versions, like Rabid Peach, Rabid Luigi, they all do have human voices now who say things. Not full voice acting, but enough things that it throws me off. Because I liked when Rabid Peach was just making weird, funny noises, and now, like, she'll say things like a human person, and that's weird to me. Um... There's a setting to turn the voices off entirely, or you can turn it down in like the volume menu, but then you don't get like Mario going, woohoo! I wish I could just turn off the human voices because it's freaking me out a little bit. Yeah, wait, but doesn't, isn't, woohoo! Isn't that a human voice? Are you saying yeah, that, you know that what is I mean. not a I, human voice? But, but like Mario's just saying random mascot shit. Not, I okay. mean like the parts where they're like, you know, talking like people, not like video game mascots. <laughs> okay. No. Otherwise, 
great game. If you liked the first one, you'll like this one. I do, one thing I was surprised, I, it's not that, I think, uh, inviting maybe to newcomers. Like, you'll pick it up, but it doesn't really tutorialize the elements that were there in Kingdom Battle. It tutorializes the new stuff. So, uh, like, I'm kicking into, like, a lot of my instincts and things I learned from that game. If you've played any kind of XCOM-style tactics game, you'll be fine. But, like, it is... Just know that, like, the onboarding might be a little steep because it ex I think it, like, expects you've played Kingdom Battle, which I'm fine with, but there you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the game gets you into gameplay very, very fast, which I appreciate for this kind of thing. The game I really want to talk about this week, though, Sean... I did not expect to be playing this, but I heard about it, and I thought it looked cool, and it was free. There's a new Marvel card game on iOS and Android called Marvel Snap. Have you heard about this? I've heard about it, but I, I know nothing about it other than that it exists. Well, it's made by the guy who directed Hearthstone. Hmm. Um, and it is the guy who directed Hearthstone. I'm forgetting his name, but he left Blizzard at a certain point. And this is his new studio's first game. And it is a card game largely in the vein of something like Hearthstone, in that it's a digital card game that could not exist in reality, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like a game you could print the cards out and play yourself. But it is absolutely fucking ingenious. It is like the best of this kind of thing I've ever played. I love it to death. The basic setup is that it's, for one, they've made it very, I want to say snappy, even though it's called Marvel Snap, uh, which is, I guess that makes it a pun, but it is. It's like very quick. It's always six turns exactly, and it is six turns with this very like rigid system that has a lot of strategy to it, but keeps it moving very quickly and stops you. Like, you know, I think Hearthstone has gotten to a point where if you're not a weird pro level gamer, that like people will just play turns go on forever and that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the fate of a lot of these kinds of games. Marvel Snap is really made to not do that. So you have all the cards are based on Marvel characters, obviously, and the art is very cool. And one nice thing is that it is a free to play game, but all the paid progression stuff is just for, like, card aesthetics. It's not for, like, the pay-to-win kind of thing. So you will not feel pressured, I don't think, to, like, spend a bunch of money on it. Um, although the visual upgrades are nice and fun, but you also get a bunch of them through the normal course of play. So I have not felt like I need to spend anything. Um, but the basic setup is you have six turns, and there are three zones on the board where you play cards. And the turns happen simultaneously. So you and your opponent both lay down cards without seeing the other person's, and then you turn them over and you see what effects happen. And there's various, you're basically trying to own and have more points, more power points at each of these three locations. And whoever has, you know, best out of three, two out of three, three out of three of those locations wins. But each location also has a randomized condition. And they come out in the order of turn one, you see the condition of zone one, turn two, you see zone two, turn three, you see zone three. But you can play on any of those locations at any time. And those randomized conditions, there's tons of them, but you get to know them and you get to know different strategies around them. And it keeps it like, it's extremely simple to learn. Like the tutorial onboarding is only two like fake games you play and it's very easy to learn, but there is such incredible strategy to it. And because it moves so fast, each match is like less than five minutes. It's extremely quick, extremely snappy. It's so much fun. I have had... Like, I have not been able to pull myself off my fucking phone playing this game. It's crazy. And also, I'm loving it because I have found a game I am really fucking good at because I have played dozens and dozens of matches and I've only lost three times total. <laughs> it's nice. like the most dominant I have ever been in an online game. And I feel very good about that. 
Uh, so, you know, you, you guys play too. See if you're that good. I, I will say, I think a lot of people have maybe missed the point of you have to get three zones. Don't just put all your shit into one. That's the rookie mistake I keep seeing from other people. But like... Uh, that seems like a losing strategy if you need to have at least a two out of three Yes, indeed. Win. Yeah. But like, it, you kind of have to... Like, w- being good at it really involves playing the long game because you want to kind of plan because also like it it you also have a certain number of energy each turn so at the beginning you can only play cards with one energy Mm -hmm. then on turn two you can do two energy three blah 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 so you have to balance your deck you have to think about how much energy you have and you have to kind of be planning for like what's my six power card going to be at the end and what am i building towards and i've had games where i've you know technically been losing on two of the three sides of the board but then i know i'm going to be able to turn it around in the last one and just completely flip it and win there's also kind of a poker betting mechanic not with real money or anything it's with the uh snap cubes that are these basically things you can bet that like level you up in the official ranking system and if you think you're going to win you can kind of like double down your bet and the other player could choose to double down or you can also retreat from the battle earlier if you don't want to lose uh some some extra cubes uh and so that adds a whole other level of fun to it it's just really really good it's extremely addictive but again it's not like you have to pay to like play extra games a day or anything like that it really Mm -hmm. is the progression is like extra card uh visuals because you unlock lots of cards through the basics of play you also there's not like a crazy number of cards in the game you will after a little while of playing you will know all the cards basically and so you know what's coming from the other player as well. And so the the deck building and everything does not feel overwhelming in any way. And I like that about it as well. Like I was telling my brother Thomas about this game and he said, well, how long before you get decent cards to play with? And I'm like, right away. You have a good deck right away. You'll be able to win. Because it is a little bit less about like having great cards in your deck than exploiting the situations as they unfold during the match. Yeah, you will not hear me talk or boast or, like, uh, not boast, uh, uh, like, praise mobile games a lot because I just don't play mobile games that much. This is one that I cannot tear myself away from and I'm loving it. Nice, yeah. It, it seems like something that I'm definitely going to check this out because, again, I, I had heard about it but just didn't know really any of the details about it. Um, it seems like a game that you want to get on the ground floor because eventually it will be saddled with an insane amount of, like, design creep and shit as all these games will be. <laughs> Um, even if they have built-in systems to try to combat it, eventually there will be your 12th expansion pack, and that will have added the seventh turn, you know, and just, like, if anybody has played Yu-Gi-Oh! when they were kids and has not seen any Yu-Gi-Oh! from the past yes. five years, look at anything connected to Yu-Gi-Oh! and have your brain melt with how that game has, is just a different game at this point. Um, it is the, the fate of all such card games, so... I'm sure it will happen, in, but, like... Now. Yeah, I will say this game does feel like it's been made with those lessons in mind. It feels like a game by people who have like, who made Hearthstone and saw it kind of get away from itself through design creep and are like, let's, let's make a concerted effort on this one. And you can feel that. And again, it'll certainly design creep to some extent, but so far, man, I'm having a blast with it. Awesome. Yeah. So good, good week for games. And it's a busy time for games because then... Next week, we have the full launch of Modern Warfare 2. Bayonetta 3 is coming out. We have God of War. We have all sorts of shit. Yes, it definitely feels like it has been a relatively quiet fall, but everything is kind of in this last couple weeks of October and into November is where all the video games are. 
Yes, I I appreciate that Pokemon is doing their annual thing where they put it out right before Thanksgiving. So I have I can just take that with me on my Switch, and that's what I'll play then. And I know when I get to play that game. That mm. makes that one easier. But yes, lots of games. All right, record scratch. Breaking back in here before we jump over to Japanimation Station, John. Or, John. I'm Jonathan. You're Sean. Yeah. Sean. I want to talk to you about Doctor Who real quick because we are recording this on the day of the final 13th Doctor episode, the final episode for Jodie Whittaker and for Chris Chibnall, thank God. (laughs) On the latter more than the former, but yes, the final Chris Chibnall episode. Uh, And Sean, I have been following this because I've been fascinated with what's coming next and I had a lot of this leaked for me and I saw, I was looking this up while we were recording earlier stuff and it was all true, Uh, but you didn't know any of this. So I am going to send you the link to the regeneration scene on YouTube. We're going to watch it together. I'll edit this down if we need to, but I want to hear the live reaction. And then I want to talk about the implications of the regeneration scene um, because I actually think it's pretty exciting. So there's the link, Sean. Uh, let's do this. Okay. So I've brought the link up. Tell me when I should play. Play now. Okay. We're watching this together. We've got the 13th Doctor. She's in her really ugly TARDIS. God, that's such a bad set. I hadn't yeah. thought about that set in a while. She's got regeneration energy coming out of her. She's outside on a cliff. This is the first not in a TARDIS regeneration of the modern era. It always used to happen this way. Yep. She's glowing slightly. It's the only sad thing. I want to know what happens next. She wants to know what happens next. As do we. Right then. Doctor whoever I'm about to be. That's a pretty good Doctor Who pun. Doctor whoever I'm about to be. Mm-hmm. Tag, you're it. Okay, I actually kind of like that as a line. And now she's regenerating. Big sweeping shot of the cliff. This is a nice scene. Yeah, this is fine so far. She landed the TARDIS very well onto that very small rock. I'm impressed with her piloting. Yes. Now here's where it's about to get weird. Okay, I think I see where this is going. I'm seeing a suit. I'm seeing an overcoat. I'm seeing David Tennant. Okay, yeah. This is really good. I know these teeth. He says, I know these teeth. What? We're getting some what's. We're getting what? Yep. What? What? Okay. Doctor's very freaked out. That's how it ends. Okay. David Tennant is the 14th Doctor. Or maybe the 10th again? I don't know. But anyway, this was leaked. Um, I knew this was coming. Uh, they've since confirmed some details, Sean. What this will be, they've now finally been able to tell us. Next year for the 60th anniversary will be a three special season with David Tennant and Catherine Tate. David And the, the like driving point will be, hey, what is going on here? Why did I regenerate into David Tennant again? Um, and that'll be kind of the driving thing. The premiere is directed by Rachel Talalay. Holy shit. Fuck yeah. Um, yes. For people who don't know, Russell- that's one of the great directors from the Peter Capaldi years um, yes. on Doctor Who. Yeah. The great director. Um, yeah. D- uh, so Russell T. Davis is back. He's writing all of these. And then the uh, Shudi Gatwa, the man who has been cast as the next Doctor, um, I guess, and I, I'm unsure what the numbering will be, whether they will call David Tennant the 14th, no, and then I, Shudi Gatwa will be 15th. I have to assume that they're going to call Shudi Gatwa the 14th Doctor, and there will be some timey-wimey bullshit sure. where they will 
Yeah, I can't imagine but, that they're going to have like a oh he the David Tennant was the tenth and the fourteenth Doctor. Other than in like yeah. when Doctor Who nerds like to be annoying to each other. Yeah, but however uh, that will work. His season, his first season, will air in twenty twenty four. They did also put out a little preview of next year's episodes, and you do see Shudigawa in a shot of that. Maybe that's from the end after he regenerates mm-hmm. or something. Um, but yes, so that is all coming. But the way they are doing this is for the 60th anniversary year, we're getting three specials with David Tennant as the doctor. And then we're getting Shudigatwa. I actually think this is a pretty exciting idea. Um, I like how Russell, I assume Russell T. Davis wrote the end of that regeneration scene because this is yeah. usually how this is done. Yeah, that's how it's always when done. David Tennant, when David Tennant comes back in and says, wait a second, I know these teeth. Because of course his first line way back when was, no, new teeth, that's weird. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I think this is a fun idea. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's Doctor Who's in need of a desperate reset, you know, in, in the sense of like, just we got to recenter ourselves uh, with that franchise after the Chris Chibnall years. Um, and yeah, I think having, it, it creates like a fun little plot, right, to, to unravel yes. for your anniversary year. You're, you know, you are in very good hands because David Tennant obviously knows how to play that character. Russell T. Davis obviously knows how to write that character, particularly when David Tennant's playing it. Um, I'm very excited for the new Doctor, Chidigatla, as well. Um, but I think this is this seems like a fun thing to be able to look forward to. I think it's probably also canny to try to like bring old fans like ourselves who, and it, particularly for old fans from the old Russell T. Davies years in particular, back into the fold with the show because they've been bleeding viewers for years on the Chris Chibnall version. So... Uh, this is a thing that I think can attract a lot of people who fell off of Doctor Who because it got very bad. Bring bring everybody back home. Be like, hey, we're it's okay. We're safe here. It's okay. <laughs> um, let's watch some good Doctor Who, and then we'll go off onto like in, in a, a more uncertain but exciting future after that point. Yeah, and from what I've seen from like the behind the scenes reports, uh, they're they're playing it as like fifteen years have passed for Donna, played by Catherine Tate. Mm-hmm. I think that'll be a fun dynamic of like for her, it's been fifteen years since seeing the Doctor. For him, it's been hundreds of years, yes. you know, and several lives, and it's a very different situation. Um, there's some intimation that the Rose, who is going to be the next Doctor's companion, is Donna's daughter, and that's how they're kind of introducing all of this. Hmm. But I think this kind of like chain of events is fun. It seems to me like Russell T. Davies has a vision for what to do with it. And that makes me happy. What's with him regenerating his clothes though? Because they had in that shot the the clothes regenerate as well. So you don't have David Tennant starting out in Jodie Whittaker's costume. That disappoints me a little bit. I mean, it's to be fair, like you couldn't do a... Like he's not going to have to go find, like figure out a new look for the Doctor. Because he's just going to have the 10th Doctor look. So I think... I suspect that's just part of like the, not the sense that oh the, he that David Tennant is playing the fourteenth Doctor, but he's somehow playing the tenth Doctor again, in in some sort of weird weird way, right? Um, yeah, I think that is meant to be part of that whole aesthetic. It is definitely weird. It's the first time that they have done that, um, but it means that then Shidigawa, I guess, will then presumably be in a shitty version of David Tennant's outfit, like Matt Smith was for his first story as well. Yes. It's an interesting time. I also was trying to read plot details from this episode. Apparently, uh, they did not address the Timeless Child stuff even once in the finale, which is hilarious. I guess that makes it easier to retcon. 
Um, but yes, apparently, I think the last time that was brought up was during the Flux season, and Chris Chibnall has completely dropped it in the season, uh, special since then. Uh, really hoping Russell T. Davis does a little retcon on that one. Um, and otherwise, like, apparently, uh, people were complaining a little bit that Jodie Whittaker got a little lost in the mix in this finale because it was a bunch of master timey-wimey bullshit. Yeah, I mean, they had all um, the shit about, like, here's, like, five companions we're bringing back and all that kind of stuff that I saw in the lead-up to it. That, that they had reeked of the worst of, like, the Chibnall, like, let's just throw yes. a thousand uh, things at the wall to try to see if anything sticks. And, and surprisingly to no one, none of it usually does. Yeah, and they also did have a bunch of old doctors come back for a brief scene. Um, I know they had... Obviously, David Tennant is in the episode. I believe I saw that... Okay, David Bradley showed up as the first doctor for a scene. Uh, and then Colin Baker, Peter Davison, Paul McGann, and Sylvester McCoy were all there for a moment. Uh, so I don't know if that was just like a... But it was new scenes with him, apparently. It was not just old footage so that's kind of interesting i'm curious to see clips of that i don't want to see the whole episode because it's chris chibnall and it's inevitably shit but there you go yeah i have opened up the uh, doctor who subreddit because they always have a reaction thread that's where i usually go to just get a sense of what the fuck did people think of this episode and one of the first comments i saw was well that sucks so glad she's gone onwards and upwards hopefully um so yeah <laughs> seems like subreddit doctor who subreddit was not super excited um yeah Lots of people seemingly not liking that episode just by browsing through this thread. So, not not surprising. Well, uh, that's that's what most of these bad. have been. Yes, they've all been bad. Uh, at least it's done. At least Chris Chibnall is gone. Jodie Whittaker, I look forward to your eventual debut on Big Finish Audios, where you will get to play a decent version of the 13th Doctor. Um, didn't happen on TV, unfortunately. Yep. And now, though, I have to... I'll, I still need to pay my penance. Often I've got no, you don't. You I've can just got skip it. what, it's like okay. maybe ten episodes at this point lined up. Um, because I never, I never seen... even watched the special that was after season oh. twelve. So I still got that. So special. yeah, you have ten. Yeah, I've yeah. got the flux season. Then I've got three specials now after that. Right. Uh, yeah, you get to watch the Legend of the Sea Devils episode, the lowest rated episode yes. in the history of Doctor Tru Who. Truly, an episode that I assume will live up to the word legend in its title. Um, because I've heard a lot of shit about about that one. Um, but I'll do it. I'm gonna fucking watch him. You fucking, I'll fucking show you all. I'll do it. All right. Anything else before we move over to some Japanimation? Yes, Jonathan. Let's talk about some Japanimation and some. Jiplive Action Station. Let's go! Full Metal Alchemist! Full Metal Alchemist! Hello and welcome to Japanimation Station, an anime podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to dive into the wild and wacky world of anime. This week on the show, it is the season finale for uh, Japan Animation Station Season 1, I guess we call it, for Full Metal Alchemist. We are, this is kind of a wrap-up episode where we have a weird smorgasbord of things to talk about. We have four different movies. We have Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, The Sacred Star of Milos, which is the uh, anime original movie made for Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. And then we have the trilogy of live-action Full Metal Alchemist movies, which are Full Metal Alchemist, Full Metal Alchemist The Revenge of Scar, and Full Metal Alchemist Final Transmutation, which those last two movies are hot off the presses as they just came out earlier this year and are all available on Netflix. Um, and this is this is a going to be a, an interesting episode of this podcast, I think. 
It's going to be a very interesting episode, but I am very excited to talk about it with you, Sean. Uh, there is these are these are interesting movies to talk about. I had unexpected reactions to all of them in some ways. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get into the Full Metal Alchemist of it all, we do just quickly want to flag for everyone that this is, as we said, the season finale uh, because Japanimation Station is going to be going away for a little bit. Because we are changing how we're going to be producing this show going forward. This first season, which has been our sort of Full Metal Alchemist episodes, we did the way we always did Weekly Suit Gundam, which is we recorded and released them just as we did it. So we yeah. watched Brotherhood, we finished part one of Brotherhood, we did the episode, we put it out. But there were different delays, just life stuff, we were both starting the semester at work, all sorts of things, right? And so this season, I think, came out a little more disjointedly than we wanted it to. I'm really happy with all the episodes. I think it's been mm -hmm. a great set of conversations and podcasts, but I wish we could have released them all a little more closely. And so we talked about it, and for future seasons of Japanimation Station, we are truly going to make this a seasonal podcast. So we are going to work behind the scenes, recording and producing and editing all of the future episodes for the next season, and when those are ready and we're confident they can all come out all at once, we are going to start releasing them. So the next season of the show, which Sean is going to tell you about in a second, broadly will be UFO Tables Fate Stay Night adaptations. And that will be about a 12, 13 episode season. And so some, that will not come back until sometime next year. So January, February, somewhere around there. And we will announce a date ahead of time. And when that starts, it'll just run for those 12 or 13 weeks. And it'll go boom, 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 boom. Every A new episode every week. It'll be truly weekly. And then it will be off while we work on the next season. And it'll go like that. And this will be a seasonal podcast. And I think that'll work better. Because I think the sort of irregular release pattern worked totally fine for Weekly Suit Gundam. Because it was all Gundam. Every Gundam is a new show. I don't think the breaks felt that jarring. But I think when you're doing one topic, the breaks can feel a little jarring. And I think this will be a more fun way for this podcast to come out. And I think season two is going to be kind of like a, a soft relaunch in that vein that I think is going to make the show even better. Yeah, and hopefully the breaks between seasons shouldn't be super, super long. Because while that season is airing, we will then be watching and preparing the material for the subsequent season. Yeah, I would I would say like the gap leading up to season two will hopefully be like our longest gap. Yeah, because once that's ready, then we can hit the ground running and keep working on the next one. The plan is not to have like one season a year, like a TV show or something, right? Yeah, yeah. I hope season <laughs> season season based on like topic more than it is yeah based yes. on like when is it coming out in the year. Um, and yes, and just to be clear, what we will be covering for season two of the podcast, um, it will be the UFO table. Um, type moon adaptations and more generally because we'll be covering first the Kata no Kyokai, also known as the Garden of Sinners movies, um, which were adaptations of novels made by Type Moon, um, which is the company that is best known for the Fate series. Um, so we'll be covering those first because UFO Table made those movies first and they're fantastic. People should check those out, um, obviously, because if you're going to listen to the podcast, you should uh, watch those also. But then after that, we'll be covering the Fate Stay Night adaptations, meaning we'll do Fate Zero. Um, then we'll be doing Fate Stay Night Unlimited Blade Works, the TV adaptation. Um, make sure you're watching the TV adaptation because there is a movie of the same name, but that is from a different studio at earlier production. Um, so we're doing, again, the UFO table stuff. So Fate Zero TV, 
Fate Stay Night Unlimited Blade Works TV, and the Fate Stay Night Heaven's Feel movie trilogy. And all of those are made by UFO Table. So that is what we'll be covering in Season 2. Um, and that will definitely be easy for us to... It will be easier for us to prepare than Full Metal Alchemist because none of those are like big 50 episode plus shows. All of them are some movies or um, all the shows are like two cores long. So they're about 24 episodes. So, Yeah, I'm very excited because I have not seen any of this stuff, but I have wanted to. I'm planning on using some of this material in my dissertation I'm writing. So I think it'll be a very fun and informative season of Japanimation Station. But that's looking to the to the future. For now, let's uh, finish up this season, Sean, with Full Metal Alchemist. Do you want to go ahead and take these movies just in chronological order and start with the animated one? Sure, yes. Let's talk about Full Metal Alchemist, the sacred star of, of Milos, I guess how you should pronounce it. This movie is fucking fascinating to me. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird one. So this came out in 2011. It is, like, connected to the Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood production, but it is worth noting, it's all different people in the top roles. Yes. It's a different uh, director, it's a different writer, it's a different composer, it's a completely 100% different animation style. It's, a, like, it, a, it's got the same cast as Brotherhood, but otherwise, like, this kind of... I mean, the best way to describe this movie, this feels like a Studio Ghibli movie that Ed and Al dropped into. Uh, because that is what it is like aspiring to be visually. I have a weird history with this movie. I saw it when it came out in the United States 10 years ago in 2012, and I hated it. I called it one of the worst movies I'd ever seen. So I've had this like chip on my shoulder about this movie. Rewatching it now, I like this movie. I kind of like yeah. this. I think this is a good movie. I actually like this more than Conqueror of Shambhala. Mm -hmm. I think this has my favorite animation in any Full Metal Alchemist production. It's weird as shit. I wouldn't necessarily say, like, if you like Full Metal Alchemist, you'll like this movie because it's got almost nothing to do with Full Metal Alchemist. But it's a fascinating film. Yeah, I yeah I I like this movie. Like, I don't think it's a great, great movie. Um, I think it, it... But it is a great production of animation. Like, if you just want to appreciate yeah. animation more than you want to appreciate, like, like the craft of storytelling in film... Um, this is a great showpiece for animation and that kind of style and the action is phenomenal. Um, but it has like a lot of narrative limitations that to me reminds me so much of most of the Naruto movies. I suspect yes. that the One Piece movies are probably similar in this regard of like where it kind of feels like this is it's this they made a different movie that then they had to drop the cast of this TV show into. And that's what all the like original Naruto movies were like, where it was just, oh, here's a totally different location. Here's a different character who's basically the protagonist of this different story. Here's an antagonist that is an antagonist of that story. And then we just have to find some way for the characters from Naruto to get involved in this other story. And that's exactly what this is, where if this movie could have not had any of the Full Metal Alchemist stuff in it, it had a different original character take generally the role of Ed and Al and probably like combine it into one character who's like an Amestrian character that encounters this scenario and gets involved. Um, it would be, it could be a movie that one would be shorter. So it could be only like 90 minutes. This movie is too long. Uh, but some of that length is just like having to find space for the Full Metal Alchemist stuff. And then it would just have, it would be just a lot leaner, more efficient, more focused movie that could have had deeper relationships between the an Ed Al type character in the plot sense um, and the main characters of this movie, whereas the Full Metal Alchemist characters have to have a weird sort of distant 
relationship to all the characters in this movie because they can't be super important because of course we know that they have nothing to do with anything that is going to happen to Ed and Al past this point in the real story of Fullmetal Alchemist. So like their relationship must be superficial to a certain extent. And if this movie wasn't hampered by all that stuff, I think it would be like a fantastic little animated kind of action fantasy movie. As it is, it is one where you can see all that potential and you can enjoy it for the animation while being a little bit bummed out by how kind of laden the story is with a bunch of stuff it doesn't really need. Yeah. I would say there's like broadly three categories of your anime movie based on a long running TV show. Mm -hmm. There is the Dragon Ball style of kind of, I don't want to say low effort because sometimes they're very beautifully animated, but narratively low effort. Let's rehash stuff from the TV series, but in like a short theatrical setting. And there's kind of that, that paradigm has very much fallen out of fashion, I think. But yeah. for a long time, that was the sort of model. The Toei Animation Fair model of, of movie. Mm -hmm. On the complete other side, you have, and this is the rarest kind, is it's just part of the narrative of the show. So you have, you know, um, like Kimetsu no Yaiba Mugen Train is the best example of this. Jujutsu Kaisen Zero is a recent example of this. Naruto, like the Boruto movie, I guess is that, basically, yes. for Naruto. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, maybe you have the author involved if it's an original story. And then there's kind of the in-between ones, which is the... We're going to tell a story that could sort of fit into the world and the continuity as we have it, but the characters from the main show have to not be involved that much because they have a role to play elsewhere. And so it's really about original characters. And these can kind of run the gamut of awkwardness. I think some of these kinds of movies can be great. The recent One Piece movies, I would say, and I say recent, the last like decade of One Piece movies since Strong World came out and Eiichiro Oda started co-writing the movies, all of those are like the best examples of this where you have the One Piece character. And this is because this is just how One Piece is structured in the manga is that Luffy is only sometimes the protagonist of One Piece. Like the protagonist of One Piece is usually the character of that arc that they are helping out. And so the movies get to borrow that structure and do it in two hours instead of 200 episodes. And they're very, very good. The recent One Piece movies are fantastic. The earlier One Piece movies, pre-Strong World, are in the more awkward category of this. Um, Dragon Ball Broly, I think, is a good example of this, where Goku is not the protagonist of that movie. It's mm -hmm. Broly, and it's Broly's story. And you can do that easier because Broly isn't an ongoing concern. Um... This movie, I think, is kind of in the awkward middle zone where there's a lot of really inspired stuff. And I don't, like, dislike the presence of Ed and Al. I love Ed and Al, and I like them here, and this is the best Al has ever looked in animation. I love oh, yeah. how Al looks in this movie. Um, so all of that is fun. But it is definitely the... I do kind of want the version of this movie that just doesn't have to be a Full Metal Alchemist movie because there's compelling stuff going on, and it's gnarly, and it's weird, and I like how it's using pieces of this world, but for such a different purpose. Like the honestly, one movie this reminds me of is One Piece movie six, Baron Omatsuri and the Secret Island, which is the one Mamoru Hosoda directed and is crazy and dark and weird. And when you get to the parts of Secret Star of Milos where they're ripping faces off and stuff like that, it definitely reminds me of Baron Omatsuri of like, whoa, you're taking a fairly tame franchise and making it just incredibly grisly. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting film. Yeah, I had a fun time watching the movie trying to imagine 
how easy would it be to rewrite this as just a Naruto movie? And it would be so easy. And that, that was like a whole mind game I played in some of the scenes that maybe were, were a little bit boring and kind of slowed the movie down too much. It's like, well, what would, okay, yeah, so this would be like a tailed beast thing instead of a philosopher's stone thing. And yeah, that would, yeah, it's like, okay, you could just slot this character here. Okay, yeah. Um, because yes, it is, it is very much in that model. Um, but it is also, you know, worth putting some emphasis on one thing that a lot of those movies don't typically have, which is this very dramatic shift in the aesthetic. Um, yeah. so as I said, Jonathan, this movie has a very kind of Studio Ghibli-esque aesthetic, and that's largely driven by the fact that the character designer and chief animation director of this movie is, uh, someone named Kenichi Konishi, who is a key, who was a key animator and still, I mean, has done a lot of key animation stuff since, um, at Studio Ghibli. So he did key animation for like Mononoke Hime or Princess Mononoke. He did key animation work on Spirited Away, on Whisper of the Heart, um, when Marnie was there. I'm just going to, I mean, there's so many. He was the, this is obviously after this movie came out, but the character designer and animation director on Tale of Princess Kaguya. So he's done lots and lots of work at Studio Ghibli before and since. Um, he did key animation work on Porco Rosso. You know, um, he also did a lot of work on some of um, Satoshi Kon's movies like Tokyo Godfathers. He was the animation director on. Um, so a really, really talented animator, um, animation director, character designer, who's done lots of great stuff, even outside of the realm of Studio Ghibli stuff also. But that is clearly like where this is coming from, because it is like, it's not just trying to like to ape Studio Ghibli. It feels like authentically in yes. that realm of the, of aesthetics. It is doing such a good job of evoking that style because it's got a legit Studio Ghibli person there, um, working on it. Uh, and so the movie has a gorgeous look. Another interesting uh, name I saw pop up in this one um, that is very early in his career before like a lot of the stuff people would know for him nowadays, but Shingo Natsume, who would probably maybe best known now as the maker of Space Dandy and the, the uh, director for the first season of One Punch Man, he was the unit director on this movie. And when I saw that name pop, I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> this, this dude like is a really in-demand name in modern anime particularly since one punch man which is just one of the best animated seasons of tv you will ever see i mean um, there are did. some cuts in this movie that you could just drop into one punch man like that's yes. what they feel like there's there's yeah. a shot near the end where your hero julia is about to get killed and then like she gets pulled down and ed comes in with this punch that gets all distorted and i'm like that feels like just a scene from one punch man <laughs> that's just yes. what that cut is you know yeah, and there's lots of amazing stuff like that. Um, and then you do also have different uh, a different director than from the main series. Uh, the director of this movie is Kazuya Murata, who the big other thing he's directed that I know people really like, and I just haven't seen it, is Gargantia on the Virgurious Planet. Not sure how you're supposed to pronounce that title because it's kind of nonsense. Um, but Also, that's a he big... was a Studio Ghibli guy. He got yes. his start with uh, Ocean Waves, which is the TV movie that Ghibli did to give the like younger staff members something to do. He worked on Only Yesterday, Porco Rosso. Um, so yeah, all these guys cut their teeth in a specific place and it shows. <laughs> yes. Um, and so it's interesting because this movie, it's a very different situation than Conqueror Shambhala, which was just the people from the TV show. You know, like it was the same director, the same composer, the same writer, like everybody was the Full Metal Alchemist people for Conqueror of Shambhala. Whereas this, it is still in terms of like, the the kind of like boots on the ground stuff or whatever you know the main animator like the key animators all that kind of stuff of like the people really kind of putting pencil to paper on this those are generally all people from the same team from full metal alchemist brotherhood this is still a studio bones studio d within studio bones production so it is 
in like a number sense, it is the same team from Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. But the top level creatives on the project are all different people, which gives it an incredibly different feel in the writing and the music is all different in the visual aesthetic and the direction. All of it feels quite substantially different. Um, and it's, it is the best part of the movie. Like the movie is just a pleasure to watch on a purely like uh, aesthetic sense and the movement and the animation is phenomenal, even if the, the plot and some of that stuff can drag here and there. Yeah. I mean, aesthetically the, the Ghibli production, this is specifically clearly most like pulling from. And I think because the people who worked on it, like, you know, Konishi would have just, just rolled off this movie is Ponyo. Um, mm -hmm. And if you've seen, like, I have a theory that I'm working on that Ponyo is like the most single, e most epochal production of like the last 20 years because just so many things have started looking like Ponyo, like in its wake, like, because that's the movie where Miyazaki really overhauls his art style and everyone around, and just the whole Ghibli like production method changes where you now have these extremely rounded, bulbous designs. The way color is used to look a lot more like almost pastel like and like kind of richer. Um, and just all of those sort of innovations that are in Ponyo that, I mean, then you see that trickling onto TV with stuff like shows we've talked with Gundam, like G Reco very much is in that vein. Um, and like this movie is very much, especially when you look at like Julia or the new original characters like the way their hair moves and is animated it's just like very clearly like okay this is like 2010s ghibli as preceded by ponyo very clearly and i love that style it's just something that mm -hmm. like i think late period miyazaki is stunning and how that's carried into other productions and i think there's a reason why it's been influential because i think it was a breakthrough production in showing how you could use digital tools to make it look kind of and feel even more handcrafted. Cause I think this style really emphasizes the way animation is made by hand. You know, it, it like, mm -hmm. because it's more bulbous and it's a little less, it's more fluid because the, uh, the character designs aren't as fixed. It's not quite to the level of like Mamoru Hosoda where you use super simple thin designs so you can make it very distended and, and fluid in that sense. But it is more like the way they move just feels more, animated for lack of a better term um and i think you see that here and it's fun with the redesigns of characters from arakawa's manga who this is the furthest they've looked from the manga but i also think maybe the best they've looked in animation because it's such a clear active interpretation of the art almost in a way that i would say like kimetsu no yaiba i feel like isn't exactly one-to-one -one the manga but its interpretation just feels like it gets something of the essence Mm -hmm. And I think Al here really shows that because Al, you know, Al is still a hard character to keep on model in any animation production. But in this movie, the redesign they've given him at once feels a lot closer to the spirit of Al in the manga than I think either of the other anime get in terms of the detail uh, and expression of his body and face. But also like because of the kind of natural fluidity of the style, when things shift a little bit, I don't feel like, oh God, Al is off model like I do every 10 seconds in Brotherhood. I feel like they're doing something interesting here. Yeah, and that there's a, it gets across a thing that the manga is able to do where the manga is able to very fluidly, or like fluidly in the sense of that because you don't have anything in between, you're just getting still images. It doesn't feel off at all when in one shot, Al in the manga will be incredibly deformed in like a chibi version or whatever. And like in, with the tension, Arakawa has completely radically changed the way that he visually looks for a gag or whatever. Um, but that's for a single panel or in the background of an image or something like that, where it doesn't distract you. 
Whereas sometimes in the anime, when they would do that, it doesn't flow as naturally. Whereas here, they don't really do a sort of super deformed chibi aesthetic at any point, but they do have characters like look and their like physical proportions shift and do things like that in order to express emotion or to fit the scene in different ways. And I think that Al is definitely the character that benefits from that, that he is able to physically express emotion and stuff like that while still being like to your brain you understand he's just like a suit of metal armor but you're seeing it be emotive in an expressive way through the style of the animation in a similar way that in the manga when that those transformations happen and he's drawn a chibi style or whatever you understand that in a real sense that character has not suddenly become two feet tall you understand that it's just expressing that in an artistic aesthetic and this is able to do that in an animated form differently but very efficiently yeah, I love the way Ed looks too. Um, they've done this thing with his eyes where Ed's eyes have always been drawn as a black iris in the middle and then yellow around that um, as like the, the kind of what would be white space and normal eyes, like human eyes. Um, and what they do in this movie is they make it this mixture of yellow and green that is so striking and looks so, and like gives him so much expressionality. Like, that's, that's the thing about this movie that maybe blows me away more than anything else is the color setting and the color work. Mm -hmm. And that is, like, if I'm bringing back, back to Ponyo, that's the biggest breakthrough of Ponyo as a movie is, I think, what it was able to do with color. And, like, I think probably the ultimate breakthrough of anime in terms of, like, HD, digital color. You know, you're not using physical paints anymore. You're doing it in the computer. But it found a way to make those colors feel so alive. And I think in the last 10 years, you've seen at all levels of anime, the, you know, if you think about like Gundam Seed and the colors in that versus, you know, colors in what's airing right now, which for Mercury, just the technology has come such a long way. And this to me is that moment for Full Metal Alchemist of like, oh, the colors in this are so beautiful. Oh my mm -hmm. God. Yeah. And then, you know, particularly when you have some of the incredibly insane fight scenes where yeah. the image just sort of kind of breaks down completely but in an intentional way like what you're describing with that one punch man-esque um yeah. sequence um the colors are one of the things that helps sell that and um or colors kind of like washing out in parts of the scene or colors becoming very extreme and vibrant in other sections yeah that sells the in the insanity of the emotions and the intensity of the action you get in certain sequences because that's one thing where, like, there is this general Ghibli aesthetic, but the action is very different than anything you would see in a Ghibli movie. Mm -hmm. Because it intentionally allows itself to become more, like, characters sort of distend and distort and do all of these crazy things in the action to just make it that much more fluid. There's all these frames of animation, and you're able to get away with that by kind of breaking down the character design a little bit. And sometimes they do it, like, very aggressively, like the shot I was talking about. Sometimes it's more just they're doing a level of fluidity that makes them kind of like taller and shorter and all sorts of things going on. Uh, and that's not something you'll see in like a Hayao Miyazaki production, but it looks really good here. Uh, at, at times reminding me like of the sort of Mamoru Hosoda effect of like, it's just like, oh my God, there's so many frames in this character animation. It's crazy. Uh, and yeah, the, that, that leads to action in this movie that is ridiculously fluid and is probably the coolest use of alchemy in the Full Metal Alchemist universe, I feel like. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty easily so. I mean, it, it, this movie hits with one of these things that I think is interesting about Full Metal Alchemist. It is one of the things that makes that series not really feel like a battle shonen thing, quite like something like a Naruto or One Piece, where even though there's technically the space in the setting to do this kind of story, it feels unnatural to me 
to have this story happen in a way that like in Naruto, the, the characters of Naruto going and visiting another ninja village and some wacky adventure unfolding from that feels totally fine. There's nothing like off or unusual about that. Um, you, it's very easy to suspend your disbelief and be like, oh, this was just another one of the ninja missions because the framework of the series is partially, hey, there's a bunch of crazy ninjas out there and everyone's got their own ninjutsu and a part of the vehicle of that kind of franchise is who's going to be the next crazy character you see and what are their crazy abilities going to be like? You know, Dragon Ball has the same element with like all the weird martial artists and aliens and stuff that have all their weird super techniques and special moves. You know, Bleach has the same element. Again, I have to assume that One Piece has the similar quality where, yeah, it's you go out, you're on a different island. There's other weird pirate people or like mariners or whatever, and they have their gum gum fruit that they ate and they've got their own weird powers. The thing with Fullmetal Alchemist, while technically there's space for there to be other weird alchemists, there's only like five or six alchemists you ever meet in the course of Fullmetal Alchemist, and only like three of them have cool powers. It's like Ed, it's uh, Roy, and it's Armstrong. All the rest of them are like, it's like, hey, here's Marco. He's like a scientist guy. He does, He's technically an alchemist, but he doesn't really do alchemy. Um, and so it feels like one of those series that in an alternate universe, you would have the thing where Ed has to battle through a gauntlet of like the six great alchemists. And here's I'm the ice alchemist and I am the shadow alchemist and I'm the light alchemist. I'm like the alchemist of love or whatever, you know, and it's, it, they all have weird themed <laughs> powers and it's that kind of thing. That That's just not what Full Metal Alchemist is. It doesn't right. have weird powers with alchemists and stuff like that. And so it all it feels weird here. Um, it feels weird every once in a while you get one like the the extra episode at the beginning of Brotherhood where you have like the freezing alchemist or whatever. All that stuff feels very off to me because it's so not what this series is about, even if it technically has the space for it. So when you I have mean, people shooting like lightning from their hands and having weird like Harry Potter-esque light beam battles or whatever that start happening in this movie, it very much does not feel at all like Fullmetal Alchemist because it's just not what those powers are like, even if in this movie, it is very fucking cool. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like Hiromu Arakawa in the manga makes fun of the like battle shonen thing in one particular scene, uh, which is where Scar meets yes. the guy, the, the top spinning alchemist, the like silver, whatever his name is. And he does all his crazy tricks and Scar just blows him up and kills him and moves on. And it's a hilarious scene. And I feel like that character is like, this is like the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure version of this like yes. world, right? Where it's like, I have my cool stand or whatever. Um, and Scar just is like, okay, I'm going to blow your head off and move on. And like, that's just not what, and that's fine. It's, there's no problem with Full Metal Alchemist choosing not to be that thing. Because it's an active choice. It's not a. It's not like it tries to do it and fails, right? Yeah. Um, and th but this movie is like, yeah, this, and that's why I compare this to One Piece movie six because this does feel like, like One Piece movie six, and it, in that movie it's super intentional. It feels like Luffy and friends walked into a different anime. Um, and in this movie, it kind of feels like that too. It kind of feels like Ed and Al went off the map of Amestris and wound up in the alternate universe version of Fullmetal Alchemist where it is a battle shounen. Uh, but I kind of like seeing that. And there's a bunch of other weird shit. Like, there's an entire scene of the villain of this movie stabbing people and then using a special thing on his sword to bloodlet them into a fucking tunnel to get enough blood to make a Philosopher's Stone. And it is gnarly and sick and kind of heavy metal. And I love it. 
as dark as Full Metal Alchemist is, it's not that kind of dark. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't imagine that scene happening in Hiromu Arakawa's manga. But I kind of love that it's in this movie because it's so memorable. Yeah, it, that it's very gross. Like a lot of stuff about the end of this movie is very gross. Like, yes. like here's this like tubes of full of blood. Like an in, in, in inappropriately large amount of blood based on the fact that that dude stabbed two people in the gut and yes. let them bleed out. Um, but yeah, like that's really gross. I think probably like the most intense thing you get is the whole scene where the guy who's dis- like disguised as her brother or whatever um, talks about it. It's, yeah, I ripped his face off and then wearing his face. I also like ripped off part of his stomach so that I put like his tattoo on my stomach or whatever to, to get the weird circles or and all that kind of shit. Um, and then and he I, does it. He fucking rips his skin off, yes. lines it up with her skin, cuts that out, and then he's taken around this skin map, and he's just bleeding from the side. It's gnarly. And then the yeah. way that guy dies when the real Ashley Cochran comes back out is he gets his head blown off. And, like, you know, when Scar does it in the anime, there's, like, a little bit of electricity and maybe some blood. In this, it's like you see the head explode and blood yes. goes everywhere. It's almost like Evil Dead-esque. It's crazy. Yeah, and then you have the dude who who had his face gut cut off, and you like see that you know is like fucked up face. Um, yeah, it's like this whole movie, the end stretch, like it gets gnarly in a way that is very different than the kind of stuff you got in early Full Metal Alchemist, um, like with Nina, which is obviously like fucked up, um, but is a different kind of horror aesthetic that Full Metal Alchemist would play with every once in a while, and even then, Full Metal Alchemist mostly did it early on and then kind of went away from it for most of the series um whereas this it just goes full in and on the home stretch and it's pretty great it's pretty it's pretty fucking great it's some amazing imagery i mean so the main story of this movie i think it goes back and forth because i think the setting of this idea of this big valley and this city that's way above it and the people who live down below. One, it's just a great visual metaphor for like what the movie's about. Of that you have the people living down at the bottom of this valley. And you have the town up here and they're between two countries. I love all of that stuff. And I think as a mm-hmm. setting, it's really cool. I think some of the... I think the movie doesn't trust its visuals enough to convey ideas. And has too much verbal exposition of some of these ideas. Yeah. And it gets convoluted in like, what is the star and what is the backstory? There's a weird nod. I don't know if it's intentionally a nod, but it feels like a nod to Full Metal Alchemist 03 with the city under the city that like was turned into a stone and blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, in general, I still like the characters. I like the environment. Like it, it moves along well enough, even if there are parts where it gets a little bogged down because the politics of it are so heavy. And then having to like tie it back into the world of Full Metal Alchemist is an extra layer they have to consider. Um, but I, that bothered me when I saw this originally. It didn't bother me much this time. Because you know what? Even if they're talking too much, I can look at the pretty animation. Yeah, I mean, it's just that thing where it feels like it's a shame because you can feel how much better the movie could be if it didn't have to deal with some of this stuff, you know? If it didn't have to randomly cut away to, like, Roy Mustang on a train every once in a while because he has to technically be in the movie. And and he doesn't even get, like, I just assumed they were setting him up for, like, a Piccolo moment from one of the Dragon Ball movies or from all the (laughs) Dragon Ball movies. And it feels like that's what they want, but there's not really a space for him to have a really good Piccolo moment because, again, this is not really a battle. You know, there isn't, like, the three goofy henchmen, and I'm, like, the big muscular henchman, and I'm, like, the really fast leggy henchman. I'm the one with the crazy psychic powers. There aren't those guys for him to show up and just, like, light one of them on fire and have this cool Piccolo moment. 
Um, so it, all that element of the Full Metal Alchemistiness of it, like it really it adds probably like a solid twenty minutes onto the movie that the movie just doesn't need. If it could just have a different character that like literally like all made the setting stuff more or less the same and just have an original character who's a soldier for that other side come in and and you know i think this movie desperately wants to have a character that's in the basic plot role of ed and al but has some sort of romance subplot with julia like that is the thing the movie is like asking to be able to have it gestures towards it with al um, which is like weird and funny and dumb. <laughs> you know, yes. It's just like, because you know, it, it isn't, it, it doesn't go anywhere and it can't go anywhere and it can't really mean really anything for this movie. And it really wants to be have, have some sort of bittersweet ending where there was some sort of romance kindled, but that this guy must go back to his country in the stalemate and her brother goes back to his country. Like all of those pieces are really great. But one side of it, the Ed and Al and the Full Metal Alchemist character sides, must be weirdly distant from everything else and has to have all this additional material thrown in with like, oh, we have to write in a scene for Winry to come in and fix Ed's automail and stuff like that. And all that stuff works okay for the movie, but it doesn't work in the movie's like ultimate best interest from some sort of hypothetical perfect version of it that just didn't have to deal with any of that stuff at all. Yeah, no, totally. There is a more powerful version of this ending where it is Casablanca, right? Mm -hmm. And they have to go their separate ways, and it's sad and like bittersweet. And yeah, you want your like, you want your like Ed to be Humphrey Bogart in this movie, but he can't fully be Humphrey Bogart because he has to be Edward Elric at a certain yes. point, and he has to get back on that. Like you know, roughly this movie can happen in the Full Metal Alchemist like continuity because there's space. They've said like where it would roughly fall. But, like, because of that, he has to go get back on that, you know, narrative path. I did with Al's, like, flirtation with Julia. I was hoping they would do a post-credits scene where, like, Al is... This is, like, after the events of Brotherhood. And you see Al, like, say goodbye to May on a train. And then he goes back here. And he goes back to Julia. And they, like, embrace each other and kiss. And he's in his human body and everything. And they just completely fuck with your sense of what Al did at the end of the show. And he just... He went back here and, went, and got together with Julia. I, I like to imagine that Al, you know, starts doing the thing where, like, he lives a double life and he's married to May in Shing and he's married to Julia here at Table City and neither of them know the other existence. Like, no, you know, I just travel around the world studying different kinds of alchemy and stuff. You know, that's just why I'm not home for months at a time. Um, it's totally not that I have, like, another wife and child over there on the other side of the country. It's just don't ask too many questions about it. I think it seems totally in character for Alphonse Elric to have a secret second family. <laughs> exactly. It's the it's the quiet ones that you'd never expect. That's the, those are the fuckers that do it, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, if they never find out, who's who's really hurt? <laughs> are we going to have a, a, a moral discussion about the morality of secret second families? Yes. And, and, and if you do not know that you're the harm being caused to you, it doesn't matter that it is being caused to you. It's a deep yes. philosophical topic. Probably not appropriate for this podcast. Not at all appropriate, but yeah. I don't know. Like, I just, I vibed with this movie. I went mm -hmm. back and looked at what I wrote when this movie came out, and I was kind of, some of it, I have to wonder if, like, the presentation of this movie was just subpar when I originally saw it, because it was one of Funimation's early theatrical runs. This would have been the early days of digital, like, projection i wonder if like i'm probably seeing it like a better resolution now than it was projected at then i have no idea it also is like aesthetically radically different and i've yes. seen lots of negative reaction it wasn't just me i should say this this movie no. generally has a bad 
rap. And I do understand it doesn't really feel like Full Metal Alchemist. It doesn't look like Full Metal Alchemist. So it is weird in that respect. But I think, you know, being able to come at it from a different angle now, I, this is a good movie. It's, as you say, it's got things that hold it back from being great. But, you know, when you get to that last act and there is the magma flowing and you've got Al trying to stop it and then you've got Julia swallowing the stone in a scene that is just pulled right out of Lord of the Rings where Al, where mm -hmm. Ed is like, yes. no, don't do it. You have to throw it into the fire. Yes. And she yes, takes it for herself. I mean, literally, yeah. he's telling her to throw it into the yeah. magma. <laughs> it's great. But then she's got her crazy powers and you've got the masked bad guy who turns out to be the real Ashley Crichton and he has no face and that's why he wears a mask and they have a crazy it literally is like the end of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows where you've got the blue like beam and the green beam and they're like fighting each other I don't know it slaps it's great it's really cool stuff yeah no I I enjoyed it tremendously um and and it is it's a thing where I can understand particularly at the time you know when this was you know the first new piece of uh, Metal Alchemist animation in a while and you're like off of for fresh off of Brotherhood and all that kind of stuff and if you're a big fan of Metal Alchemist how this movie would rub you the wrong way because it 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 just doesn't really feel like a Full Metal Alchemist thing but as but watching it now removed from that and as someone who like I like Full Metal Alchemist but I wouldn't consider myself like a fan of it in that way where I'm not like going and like trying to read the fanfic and I'm like oh how should how can can is there some way I can go play the Wii video game of Full Metal Alchemist like I'm not that deeply into it um it having very little to do with Full Metal Alchemist doesn't really bother me at all um so it's very easy for me in my position in my relationship with the series to not have that be an issue whatsoever um even if I have other franchises where I might would have like a similar reaction because of how off-putting it is to have something with that name on it that doesn't really evoke to me what that franchise or whatever it is means. Um, so I don't like begrudge anybody for having that kind of overly negative reaction. But I think if you can watch the movie without that kind of hanging over your head, it's very good. It's not perfect. It has flaws. Some of those flaws are frustrating because you can see how good a movie unburdened or how good this movie unburdened could be. But even with some of that stuff around it, it's it's a really good time. Yeah. And, you know, if you like Ed and Al, which I think most people do, you will enjoy them here. You know, it's fine. It's like Ed gets to, you know, Ed gets to do the thing where he turns his automail into a big sword. And it actually kind of does stuff in this movie. And it looks <laughs> sick as shit with this animation style. I mean, that is the thing. I Two thoughts, I guess. One, I do think if this movie came out today, I think it would be better received because I think people have come around on this being the kind of thing that is fun for anime movies based on TV shows is to mm -hmm. just be a little weird, be different, give us something we haven't seen. Like, I think One Piece has really learned that lesson. I think, you know, Kimetsu is a different thing because it is just the next phase in the story. But, it, you know, like... That, that means it's new. It's the next phase in the story, right? Jujutsu Kaisen Zero very clearly differentiates itself from the show. Um, you know, this is this one is weirder than those, but, like, I think there's something about it, you know... Or I'm thinking, like, Dragon Ball Super Broly just having a totally different aesthetic. And then yeah. Dragon Ball Super Superhero having another totally different aesthetic. That's fun when you have a series kind of as, as ingrained as this to just play with the look of it. I would I would love to have more Full Metal Alchemist in this animation style. It looks so good. Like I would love to see 
you know, if you want to do just more random stories where Ed and Al go around to different parts of Amestris and encounter people and like aren't really the main characters but are there, I would watch that. I would have if it would get them made. Sure, why not? I would prefer it to um, the live action movies. Yeah. So so this is so so far we've talked about two Full Metal Alchemist movies on this podcast, Jonathan, and so. I think we both are in agreement. This is the best one. It's better than Conqueror Shambhala. Let's really, and let's just really quickly say, like, I think Conqueror Shambhala has a different purpose in some degree. It's not as standalone because it is kind of like the big series finale. But like the things I like about Conqueror Shambhala are so like kind of piecemeal. And I think kind of fall apart by the end of that movie. This movie, I think I could watch this movie any day of the week and have fun with it. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine ever watching Conqueror Shambhala without doing the whole series and that kind of thing, right? Like, I just think as a movie, this is a much, much stronger production. Yes. But let's let's talk about some other Full Metal Alchemist movies and see how they fit in to the ranking because there are five movies in total. Um, and let's, so let's talk about the, the Full Metal Alchemist live-action trilogy of films, um, which is, these movies are weird. These movies are very weird. So these started, the first one was in 2017. It came out December 2017 in Japan. Came out, I think, a little later, maybe 2018, on Netflix in the United States. Uh, All of these are directed by Fumihiko Sori. uh, And we'll talk about the cast and everything. But yeah, it is a live-action recreation of Full Metal Alchemist. There was, for a while, just that one movie. Uh, And then, I think probably because of pandemic delays and everything, they did eventually produce a... I think it's better to say a two-part sequel than like yes. two more movies because they produced sort of these two other films that in Japan came out like in theaters a couple months apart. This is something that happens with live-action movies in Japan. You see this every so often. Um, like Rurouni Kenshin's movies did this as yes. well, I think, near the end. Hmm. And so they came out a couple months apart in theaters. Now they're all on Netflix. Uh, and yeah, they are a surprisingly slavishly faithful recreation (laughs) of the story of full metal alchemist in three live action movies they're not good and they're only sometimes interesting but i am excited to talk about them i'll say i there's a part of me that kind of loved these loves these movies um not that they're good but these are some real B-movie ass B-movies. I think I described yes. it on the last podcast. I think this is on the Weekly Stuff podcast to you, Jonathan, when I had seen the first one. You hadn't watched any of them yet. And I gave like a one-sentence comment, which is basically like, if there was a Mystery Science 3000 episode covering Full Metal Alchemist, it would be a great episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000 because these are some B-movie ass B-movies. I think particularly the first two are really entertaining in this way. I don't think the third one, the third one has like, is the first 90 minutes of the third one are like atrociously bad and basically a clip show version of the plot. Um, yes. it's, it's really bad. But the first two, they've got a good mixture of like special effects that are not really all the way there, but are like trying really hard. And like every once in a while you get something that's like, okay, yeah, this effect actually works pretty well. Or like, this is like an interesting way to do this. You know, a lot of adaptational choices that are very questionable, but every once in a while there's one where you're like, oh, that's a good idea. Like, that's a clever way to do this scene. Most of the performances are very kind of bad and hammy. And even like, we'll talk a little bit about the style of these movies if people have not seen live action manga adaptations because the style of this is very much a lot like the other manga live action adaptations I've seen. But even within that style, there are some pretty bad performances. 
but then every once in a while you get one where you're like, you know what? This guy, this guy playing Hughes, he's pretty good. Or like the all the character people playing the homunculi, they fucking know what the fuck they're doing with those roles. Yes. Like, absolutely. So it's got this good mixture of some really bad shit, but then every once in a while there's like a diamond in the rough that kind of pokes out a little bit. And a lot of the stuff that's bad is frequently really, really fucking funny. Like, there's some shit in these <laughs> movies that is goddamn hilarious. Some, like, weird technical snafus, some bizarre pieces of ed- editing, terrible lines and line delivery. Like, there's just stuff in this that is hilariously bad. And so I I actually really enjoyed particularly watching the first two movies. Again, I think the f- first 90 minutes of the third movie was really, really fucking brutal to get through. Um, but in general, I enjoyed watching the first two movies, even if I wouldn't call them good by any reasonable standard. So I would, for me, tweak that a little bit to say, I think the first movie is the one, like, if you're going to watch one of these, watch the first movie. It's more standalone. It feels more like a movie. Like they, Mm -hmm. I actually think the first one on a scripting level is surprisingly good. Like, I think it is a surprisingly thoughtful way of saying what could we take from the manga and rearrange to make a satisfying two-hour movie that has a pretty clear three-act structure? And I think it does that, like, surprisingly well. And I think then you have some terrible direction and acting and effects layered onto that that makes it very funny um, and just various creative choices. But, like, that first movie is interesting to me. Uh, I did definitely enjoy watching it. There are some hilarious scenes, and there are some other scenes that are just kind of fun adaptations of things, right? I thought the movies two and three, there are parts of them I found extremely entertaining. There's parts of them I found just deadening. And I agree, the first 90 minutes of movie three are almost just painful to get through. Yeah. Uh, but overall, movies two and three felt to me like like a season of a Netflix TV show that got edited into movies for some reason. It felt like it should have been a series of 45-minute episodes And I think as movies, they're just not even trying to be structured as movies. Like that second movie just goes until it stops, basically. Mm -hmm. It's like, what can we fit into two hours? We will cut at two hours. And there's no real sense of like pacing to that. Whereas it just did feel like I was binging a TV series. So I didn't enjoy those as much. Although again, there is scattered stuff throughout them that is amazing and hilarious. And occasionally like, oh, this is actually a adaptational improvement in a weird way. Uh... Not overall. This is not the definitive version of Full Metal Alchemist. (laughs) But, uh, you know, they are absolutely fascinating. Because it's just such a, like, I don't know, alternate universe version of what this kind of, you know, adaptation would look like. Overall, it made me very appreciative of the merits of animation. And why we should just Uh celebrate and love animation. Because it can do things that live action emphatically cannot. Yeah. I think that's a good opportunity to talk a little bit about like what these kinds of adaptations stylistically are because like we Hollywood doesn't make movies like this. Like we don't adapt things in this way. Um, These kinds of manga adaptations. And I've seen a few at this point. I've seen the death note movies, which I know you've seen. Um, and but the Japanese Death Note movies, not like the weird Netflix one. Yeah. Um, but even then, the Japanese Death Note movies are pretty different from these other ones. But we can talk. Sure. About but yeah, yeah, in some ways, in it, it is different. In some ways, it's not. Um, but then I've also seen. I did watch years ago when this came out on Netflix. The, there was a live action Bleach movie, which is actually like pretty decent. If you've seen and like Bleach, it's better than these. Um, and then I've seen all. And now there's five of them. Um, all five of the Rooney Kenshin movies, which are very good. 
Um, if you want to watch a live action adaptation of manga and want to see like an actual good one and one that you could watch and enjoy without knowing anything about the source material, the Kenshin movies are that. They have the advantage of being an adaptation of stuff that is like at its most extreme, a little bit over the top samurai action. So it's, you know, they don't have to have fully digital characters. They don't have to have crazy magic. Like the one of the most extreme things that happens in Roy Kenshin is a guy can set his sword on fire. Like that's not a very hard effect to do, you know? So they get to just get by with having really cool martial arts sword stuff. Um, and so they have an advantage over a lot of these movies in that it's a lot less of a load, but they are legitimately really well done films. Um, but all of those movies have like a couple of stylistic things that they do. One of which is this desire to make the characters in live action look as much like the characters from the source material as possible in their hair, in their costuming, in basically every regard that you can, you got to make them look like the character from the anime slash the manga. And it is a thing that you have to get over um, is how fucking ridiculous every single person on screen is going to look. Particularly in the first movie, because in the first movie, their costumes are so pristine looking. They, at least in the second, third movie, like, did more to kind of scuff up the costumes to make it look a little bit more like these are things people have worn. But in the first movie, it they just all look like cosplayers with no real regard for, like, making the costumes look like something a human being has ever worn before. It was put on for that exact shot. And so... You have to you have to be able to work through the feeling of I am looking at someone wearing a ridiculous fucking wig um, that just is not shaped like any human hair. They have decided they need to make sure that Ed has his little what is called an ahoge, but that little piece of hair that sticks up that has to be there <laughs> all the time. You know, every you know everybody's got five thousand pounds of fucking bullshit and gel and stuff in their hair to make it the exact shape and spikes and stuff like that that you get. All the costumes have to look exactly like the costumes from the manga as best as you can get it. And some of that stuff doesn't really translate particularly elegantly to live action. You have some characters like Armstrong in the second and third movie that looks completely fucking insane. You, it is impossible to understand why they have decided to not make minor adjustments to the character's aesthetic to make it more palatable for live action. But it's just like all of these movies do this. Um, and so it is a thing you have to to be willing to work through if you're going to be able to sit through these movies at all is how fucking dumb every single person looks except for whatever well, winry which they decided to just I, from what i understand the, the woman who plays winry is like a very popular actress and model in japan so i guess that they didn't want to put a like weird wig on her and just let her look like the way that she looks um but other than that every other person looks completely insane uh, and not coincidentally winry is one of the best performances in these three movies yes uh, she actually works as a character. But no, like this is actually, when I was going to say the Death Note movies are different, this is one aspect, is that Death Note, the manga, has a very realist aesthetic, and it is all in Japan, Japanese people in Death Note. So the Death Note movie, other than L, they make L look like, and L is a weird character who does weird stuff, but that's all physicality of the performance more than like dressing and makeup. Like no one's in weird wigs in Death Note. They gave the, the main character a haircut to look kind of like Light Yagami's haircut, but it's not exact. They No one's bleached, none of that stuff. So it just feels more like a movie and the craziest thing in it is Ryuk, who is CGI. Um... And then the characters are just characters. In Full Metal Alchemist, you know, you're, you've technically got this like giant multi-ethnic cast from like you've got your Amestrians who are 
you know, Germanic. You've got your Ishvalans who are like native peoples. You know, um, you've got all these different characters in it. And, and so you have to have people with just the craziest hair and all sorts of get-ups. And uh, it is really fucking funny, especially when you get to the crazier characters like Armstrong, who is one of the best things in all of these. But also they do this with the homunculus. They don't like... Mm-hmm reimagine any of the homunculus for like how would how would gluttony work better in live action no they get a dude who is very game to just act like gluttony and they shave his head or put a bald cap probably put a bald cap on um and they put him in ridiculous makeup and he just talks like gluttony or envy looks like they went to hot topic and had 50 bucks and they came out looking good and that's envy in this you know it's like it's hilarious it really does look like they went to a cosplay convention. Maybe didn't even get all the winners. Some of these very much feel like the runner-ups at the cosplay convention and got them together to make a movie. And sometimes it is actually just goddamn delightful to see the cosplay in action. Sometimes it's ridiculous and sometimes it doesn't work, but it is fun to see. Yes, but it is, yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. And again, I do think the second and third movies do better in this regard for some of the characters. It, particularly, it's just like, the, I think the Amestrian costumes look better because they look like worn and they put more like weather to detail into them than the first movie where they're like hilariously pristine in every single shot <laughs> it's just like yes. it's terrible um another stylistic thing is like the style of acting is so different like if you've not seen modern like j dramas or like tokusatsu stuff and stuff like that i think like the acting style is going to be very off-putting to a modern american audience that's not good would be used to how over the top a lot of the performances are um, now that being said, I think that even within that sort of very kind of what we would call over the top or hammy style that they go for, some of these performances register very poorly for me, even adjusting for that realm of acting. Um, you know, I think particularly, uh, the guy who plays Ed, I feel bad for him. Cause I think Edward Elric is like, if you're, if you're not trying to tone the character down, he's a very hard character to do in live action, particularly when you're like. 25 or whatever it's like he does not register i don't even know if he's supposed to be a teenager in this movie these movies or not um because he doesn't look like it um but that dude has to play some shit so hammy and over the top and it just registers completely wrong um there are scenes where he does a good job when he's given more reasonable material to play but whenever he has to do like a react to someone calling him a short gag it just is terrible it's so bad um, they've yeah it's so it's Ryus, Ryosuke Yamada is is Ed and it is I think the most problematic part of all three movies and I, I by the end I was convinced it's not even him as a performer because in no. the last hour of the last movie I think he's really good yes um like his last scene with Winry they just it's just a good version of that scene they just did it and it's good um but like he's directed one I think they've made Ed more like abrasive and shitty than he is in the manga like ed is abrasive to a certain extent but they've just like i don't know they've toned out some of the stuff because al is barely in these movies you don't see much of ed's tenderness so it's a lot of stuff where it's more abrasive and how they've decided to do that in live action is through extremely hammy like mugging for the camera and like you i think you and i both can enjoy this style of acting just fine there's stuff we've Mm -hmm. seen that we like um, I'll watch a I'll watch a Tokusatsu thing. I'll watch some Super Sentai. That, that this kind of thing can be very fun. But like, I just don't think it it works. And I think the tr- the very abrupt tonal shifts they ask Ed to go through are very rough. And the character just 
doesn't come across as feeling like Edward Elric to me. Whereas like there are other ones where I don't necessarily think the performance is great, but I can understand how it evokes the character. You know, like I don't think Dean Fujioka is phenomenal as Mustang, but like it feels like Mustang. It's fine. I think he could emote a little more, but it's fine. Yeah, I just think it's like it's one of those things where some of these characters translate more comfortably to live action than others. And Ed, I think it's partially what you're saying about Al, where you don't get to see as much of the more gentle side of the character. But also that in live action, a character acting abrasive like that comes off a lot different than a cartoon character. Right. If yeah. you had a, a like real live person acting the way that Daffy Duck acts in Looney Tunes cartoons, you'd look at that person like he's a fucking maniac. Just like complete, like he's going to murder somebody, you know? Um, whereas like in a cartoon, it's very, very funny. Um, but there are scenes where if you like change the music and you put more sinister music behind it, whenever he has to react to being called short, it would play like you're it's you're watching a thing for like that fucking Jeffrey Dahmer Netflix show or some shit. He's going to go on a serial killing spree because it just plays totally wrong when someone reacts so off kilter to something like that. and it's just again they don't try to tone it down into live action and so when you don't try to tone it down live action makes it seem more ridiculous than it is when it's a cartoon which naturally can do over the top stuff in a much more seamless way than live action can can ever do um and that's i think one of the big problems that ed has it is true of a lot of the other performances in some of these movies um where it just registers wrong because they didn't try to do anything to make it really fit naturally into live action um, and I feel bad for a lot of people asked to play some of these scenes because it's like, there's just no way you could have done it well. Yeah. I, you know, there's, there's the ones that work. I think their version of Hughes, Ryuta, uh, Ryuta mm-hmm. Sato, he's great. And I think yes. Hughes is probably one of the easier characters to get it right in live action, but still he's like warm and funny. And I think he does the hamminess in a way that translates Hughes to live action very effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, in movies two and three, I love their Hohenheim just unreservedly. Yes. I think it's a great interpretation of Hohenheim. I think it's a great performance. I think they've uh, like modulated the character well for live action. I I think they adapt a scene at the end that is in the manga. It's in the final volume as a bonus chapter that Brotherhood does not do, where he reunites with Trisha in the afterlife, mm-hmm. and it got me emotional. It like they did this scene I love in the manga that that we hadn't seen adapted before. So there's stuff like that that works. Then there's stuff like you just feel bad for, like the guy who has to play Armstrong. And like, <laughs> I, I the guy is fit. He doesn't really look like a bodybuilder to me. And so yes. you pull his shirt off and he does this like things, but he doesn't have like, he's not the rock. He doesn't mm-hmm. have like the bulging crazy muscles. That's who, the kind of body you would need for this. And so it plays like a joke. And it is kind of a joke because Armstrong is silly, but it's not the right kind of joke. And mostly you feel embarrassed for the movie, but also I love that it exists because those clips will bring me joy on bad days for the rest of my life. Yeah, like that's that, that's probably like the most awkward translation into a live action <laughs> character of any of them. Because then he also, the hair just is a problem. Like I just don't understand why they didn't just make him totally bald with the mustache. It would have played fine. Yes. <laughs> like I know that technically Armstrong has like a little tuft of hair or whatever in the original character design, but nobody has hair that looks like that. Even in the realm of like some of the ridiculous hair that's in Full Metal Alchemist, that's probably the most unrealistic. Um, it's very ridiculous, and there's no way I think to actually have the proper amount of hair. So he's just got too much, and it just yes. looks wrong. Um, 
yes and some I, of those wigs like his is the worst yeah. but even ed's it's just so transparently a wig yes. plopped or glued awkwardly on their head you know what these movies really desperately made me wish for like if i'm ever a billionaire i am funding these movies I need my live-action Yu-Gi-Oh! movie made in Japan <laughs> done with this level of like cosplay accuracy. I want to see what that would look like. I think it would break the the entire world. It would maybe we would have to shut down cinema afterwards because this would be that's just it. We just did it. Uh, but I have to see it. I think the wig would break the neck of the fucking actor that had to wear it for Yugi, you know? It's just like no one person can contain that much hair um, in that way. Um, I want to see that. I want to see live-action Pegasus. I want to see, you know, like like Pegasus would be some Japanese guy playing American, playing Japanese, and it would be hilarious. It's just the whole thing. You, you, could, you could do so well with it. Uh, but but we're not talking about Yu-Gi-Oh! We're talking about Full Metal Alchemist, which is plenty ridiculous for to be funny in this context. Yeah, so let's talk about the first movie um, and some of the shit that goes on. And and I think maybe like one of the things to start with is because I think it's one of the things that stands out is some of the special effects stuff. And there's a the best special effect in these movies is also the most tragic special effect, which is Al. Yes, like <laughs> so Al is a completely digital character, um, partially I think driven by their need to have characters look as exactly like their manga counterparts. Um, they've decided to make Al totally digital. Now, they're within a certain realm of expectation, they're able to do that effect reasonably well. Um, because Al is totally met like metallic, that is like the kind of thing that our modern special effects can do really well, even on a lower budget, um, so that you can do your reflections on set if you plan it properly and all that kinds of stuff. Um, it, you know, where when they have some totally digital fleshy characters like Sloth in the third movie, it looks fucking terrible. Um, but Al, they're able to reasonably do. Now, I think the animation is pretty awkward because it's all mo-capped and Al is not proportioned like a human. So the mo-cap data, it does not seem like modified enough to me and like the motion of the character, the weight of the character seems wrong in a lot of scenes. But that, but like in general, I think the effect plays pretty well. The tragic thing is though, that because Al is a totally digital character and this movie does not have the budget to like hire an endless army of VFX uh, studios to do your VFX in an insane crunch time like Marvel, they have to make the choice to try to find as many opportunities to cut Al out of sequences as possible. They are very aggressive and it's my favorite almost running joke in the movies is to try to spot the moments where they're like, okay, how, how can we manage to not put Al in this scene? Um, what can we possibly do? Because you can't do the effect and it's because it's just too expensive and it's tragic because there's no good reason why Al has to be a digital character. He's just a suit of armor. Like in this world, surely that suit of armor is technically intended to be worn by an actual person, you know, like suits of armor are. Now, I know that it's so stylized in the manga that no real human would ever be able to wear that shape of armor, but if you just changed it a little bit and you made it a little bit more reasonably proportioned, but you found some of those key things like the horn and the design of the helmet and stuff to make it still look like Al, you could have just had a, a fucking dude in a suit and... It, you can do lots of cool shots where you digitally like paint out the guy in the suit to make it look empty or maybe even do occasionally a totally digital version of Al for like a shot that does a cool stunt. Um, but that's not what they do. They decide to make him totally digital and it is it is the thing that's, that kills these movies before they get started is that they cannot properly do Full Metal Alchemist because Al cannot be in most of, for like in the movie for most of the movie. 
Al is just not a character in these movies. Yes. It's, it is exactly, I think, tragic is the right word. Because Al, I think, is just a genuinely impressive special effect. It is a better special effect than I have seen in a Phase 4 Marvel movie. Any of them. Throw any of them at me. Al is a better special effect than those. Because Phase 4 Marvel looks like fucking shit. Frankly, it looks a lot like these movies. And Al, like, is well lit within scenes. The texture is on point. He's, like, placed like he has weight in scenes. It's a really good special effect. Unfortunately, because it's a really good special effect, it's probably an expensive one. And therefore, you just don't see him much. And so, this is Full Metal Alchemist, where Ed is alone most of the time. Yes. And, like, I don't know. Al is the heart and soul of Full Metal Alchemist. He is... Like, Ed is the more central character, but Ed's entire motivation in life is his love for his little brother, who he wants to restore to his body. And if you never see his little brother, and you never see Ed with his little brother, then the whole thing falls apart, and it's just a house of cards that collapses on itself. And you're right, it just, it can't get off the ground, because you don't have Al in these movies, it's hilarious. You get to... My favorite part is that even when Al is restored to his body as a human at the end, they still just don't do his ending scenes. Mm-hmm. So you still don't really see him. It's just like, they're just like, well, we haven't invested in him up till now. We can just leave him alone. And just Al was never a character in this version of Full Metal Alchemist. It's like Lord of the Rings, if Frodo and Sam went out together, but Sam kept disappearing for long periods of time. And we just never really saw him. Yeah, I mean... It's one of the things where they where Winry ends up being much more central in the first movie than she would be in the like material because they cut Al out of all the stuff involving uh, Dr. Marco and just have Winry there for those scenes instead. Um, so it does make like Ed and Winry have a lot of material in these movies relative to like what is adapted. Obviously, these movies, they while they adapt a lot of the bulk of the source material, there's lots of stuff that they don't adapt. Um but so in that like mixture, the proportion of how much edit and Winry stuff there is, is like quite a lot um, because it, it, she's kind of the go-to character they have for when you can't have Al there. Well, let's just throw Winry there because Ed needs somebody to talk to. Um, but it's always funny where you just end up forgetting that Al exists for large stretches of all three of these movies. You just like forget that he's even a factor until eventually it'll later cut back to him. And you're like, oh, right, right. The, the other Elric brother, the, the one who lost his whole body, the one who's like the motivation for the main character of these movies, um, the one who has like his whole own plot line and resolution and all that in the source material. I guess he is technically still in these movies, huh? Is a thing you think about, you know, every 30 minutes or so when they finally cut back to him. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, he's there. That's right. And it is just, it is crazy because it is the most unforced error you could imagine. It's yes. just the... This character does not need to be CGI. It can just be a dude in a suit. And like, is Al... As you say, Al in the manga is not proportioned like a real suit of armor. But we encounter this in filmmaking all the time. Darth Vader is taller than any human being who's going to be in the Darth Vader suit. So like, when Hayden Christensen plays Darth Vader in episode 3 or in the Obi-Wan show... They are doing tricks, and he's, like, not looking out the mask because he's not that tall. You can make it work. It's not impossible to make this thing work. And if you needed to have him be CGI for a fight scene or something, well, then there you go. That's your one use of CGI, and you can make it work. But, like, it is just, it's this completely unforced error that once you get going, you can't fix it because you've had to build the entire movie around it, and it doesn't work. 
The other thing is I don't think the performance is good. It's Atomu uh, Mizuishi as Al. I don't like the voice. It's an extremely different voice than what Rie Kugamiya does, obviously. But, like, I've heard lots of Al voices I love in both versions of the dub. You've got Aaron Dismuke and uh, Maxi Whitehead. They're both great. I like all the versions of Al I've heard. This one is just, like, weirdly stunted and, like, awkward as a performance to me. I, I, I was fine with the performance. Um, like, I don't think it blew my socks off or anything i just think it's like there there's nothing to do for him as a performance because he's just barely in these movies and so there's nothing for you to like hold on to to create an emotional connection um i mean there's stuff like i think one of the funniest ones is in the first movie you have that scene where it's like ed winry and al are having dinner with hughes and his wife and the way the scene is shot is so desperately trying to make sure that you don't see Al in any shot. And only in a couple of shots where he has dialogue will they actually show him. But like you could edit that scene by just cutting out a couple of sequences and so easily keep maybe about 90% of that sequence untouched and make it so that you would never know that Al was in that scene at all. Because it's so much of the framing is here's a shot with Ed and Winry and the, the, the you know very conveniently on to the left of Winry where Al's supposed to be they just you just don't see that part oh and here's this like wide shot that's angled just such so that that corner <laughs> of the table where Al is sitting you just conveniently don't see it um and there's lots of stuff like that in scenes where you know there's obvious stuff where they cut him out of plot sequences so he's not there at all but even in scenes where Al is there the scenes are shot in such a way to try to avoid showing Al at any state possible so it's like if you can feel it when watching the movie you can feel this tension it's like you can see the budget and it's like you it's like there might as well be a meter on the bottom of the screen with the budget that every time al's on screen just that meter starts filling up more it's like we gotta cut we gotta cut we're spending too much money on these shots with al um and and it just sinks the whole project unfortunately but it is very funny at the same time because you can see it because you know it's happening um with the funniest of them all being, and this is definitely head to the second movie, but if we're talking about Al, we have to talk about this moment where Ed goes to Reason Bull after getting his arm destroyed by Scar alone. Um, but but it's so set up poorly that it didn't really register to me that Al didn't go too. I mean, obviously you didn't see Al go, but you don't see Al in most of the scenes that Al's in. So it didn't like jump out to me that you weren't seeing Al go there. I just assumed Al was there also. And Ed goes to Reasonable and there's all that shit happens. He meets Hohenheim. Uh, we'll talk about how why he goes to Xerxes, which is hilarious. But he fucking goes to Xerxes. He goes on an entire desert adventure and does all of that stuff happens. And, and you never see Al for that whole sequence. And then after all of his crazy desert adventure, it then cuts to the hotel room in Central where Al is there. He is half destroyed from their fight with Scar earlier in the movie. And he's just on the floor of this hotel room. He has presumably been there for fucking weeks, just lying on the floor <laughs> while Ed wait for like 30 minutes of the movie off on doing all this shit. And Al has just been there the whole time. And it is... One of the funniest things in these movies is that cut. I howled with laughter because I had no idea where Al was the whole time. And he missed meeting their dad again. He missed all the shit going on down there. And he was just hanging out on the dirty floor of this old fucking hotel room without any goddamn legs. Just chilling for weeks. It's fucking hilarious. It is a significant chunk of the manga 
that Al just misses because what it does is it combines the initial trip to Rizambul from early in the manga. Yes. The second trip where Ed goes alone when Mustang is executing the plan in Central to kill Lust. And then also all the stuff with... So I guess it's, yeah, those two trips, they combine into one trip, which means you also have the Hohenheim stuff and the Xerxes stuff. And all of that happens. And Ed is just like, I guess Al will be fine. There's no rush to get back. I'm the only alchemist that can put him back together, but he'll be fine. I want the, like, short film about Al's weeks alone in the hotel room. <laughs> Did, like... Was, like, Riza Hawkeye coming in and, like, bringing him lunch every... I guess he doesn't eat. So, like, were people coming by just to stop and say hi and, like, give him company? Or was he just meditating? Like, poor Al. It's, like, existentially terrifying to consider this yes. poor kid who is stuck in a metal body and just can't move of his own accord sitting in a room alone. He also can't sleep. That's yes. a detail about Al. He can't sleep. Poor God. Poor guy. This is just horrifying when you think about it. Yeah, and, like, that cut is preceded by this very blasé line which Ed has, which is like, you know what, I should keep getting back to Central. You know, I need to get back to Al anyway. <laughs> it's something like, it's like this very casual line, and that's when you cut to Al in the fucking hotel room. And that's when you, the audience, realize that that's where Al has been. Because, again, if you know the source material, in the back of your head, you're thinking, oh, Al's in, like, one of the rooms upstairs or whatever, just waiting for, you know, some alchemy shit to happen to put him back together. Um, and that's the moment where you're like, oh, right, okay, I guess he just never came down in this version. Um, and that, you know, that is the funniest Al thing in this whole thing. That is the most hilarious, transparent, we have no idea what to do with this character. Let's just throw him onto the carpet for weeks while, while our main character goes and does all the plot stuff. Yeah, because there are... That is the worst and most awkward because they don't even set it up earlier that, like, there's not a scene where Ed and Al talk and, like, you stay here, Al, I'm gonna go here... There are other ones that are more elegant. The third movie rearranges some stuff so that Ed and Al learn about the National Transmutation Circle before they go to Briggs. And then Ed's motivation for going to Briggs is to stop the crest of blood being carved there. Yes. And he says, I'll go do that. Al, you go to Lior and find our dad. He's there and, and, and figure out what he's doing. That's a better plot connection than what is actually in the manga at that point. And, like, as a means of splitting up Ed and Al is perfectly elegant. Uh, and it's just, these movies have extremes, I guess you would say. Yes, because that's a very good example of where they come up with a smart adaptational choice that also covers up their weird thing that they have to do with Al. Um, but that second yes. movie does not find any any elegant way to deal with that. Um, yeah, so that's, that's some of the Al stuff. Going back to the first movie... Um, the first movie has this weird problem to me where Ed only uses alchemy in like the first 20 and last 20 minutes of the first Full Metal Alchemist movie. <laughs> like the whole, and this again feels like a budget thing. The whole middle stretch of the movie is written such that they rearrange things so that he doesn't have to have any fights. Scars obviously not in the first movie. They bunted all that movie stuff for a later movie that when eventually they were able to make the sequels. Um, but it means that like, Al or Ed almost never uses alchemy at all. And it's there's a fight at the beginning in Lior um, where they do this very truncated version of some of the Lior stuff. And then you have the they all the stuff where they fight lust and gluttony. They've kind of taken that shit with Roy Mustang and adapted it to have Ed be there for those scenes and he's involved um, very directly um, in that fight. And that's the other time that he uses some alchemy. But for most of that first movie, there's, there's a very little action 
the whole middle stretch of the movie is mostly um, all dedicated to the Nina uh, and Tucker stuff and all that. Um, and I think it's kind of like a blessing and a curse because when you see the alchemy stuff, sometimes they get a decent effect. But oftentimes you have this issue where like the effects are like good enough that they get very close, but they miss really important details. Like there's a shot at the beginning fight um, where he's fighting Don Corneo and he, and Don Corneo is creating these like pillars of stone that are like closing behind Ed and he's running away from them. And it's like a lot of the technical stuff of, of like the texture on the stones and that kind of stuff looks totally great. Like it's the kind of stuff where if you saw this special effect like 10, 15 years ago, you would think that, that those stone pillars look fucking amazing for a digital effect. But the problem is like there's no sense of urgency to the way that it's shot. There's no like there's when they close behind Ed, his like hair doesn't get rustled. His, um, you know, his cloak or whatever, his his coat doesn't go billowing because these massive stone pillars just slam shut behind him. There's no sense of like energy to it. It's like some of the effects are technically good, but the direction and the concept around the scene and how the rest of it is shot is so bad at trying to communicate the energy around a lot of those action sequences. I think this is particularly in the first movie has this problem. They get better at it in the other movies. Um, but a lot of those shots in that first scene are so awkward because it's like the effects are technically fine, but everything else about these scenes are so poorly handled that it feels really cheap and bad. Yeah, no, I, and that's actually my general thesis on these movies is that like, there are a couple of really bad special effects, but overall, I actually don't think the effects are problematic. Like, honestly, they're not, I don't think, demonstrably worse than what you will see in, like, Thor Love and Thunder. Like, mm -hmm. there are parts of this that look way better than that movie, frankly, uh, and this one has a similar amount of green screen work. So, like, whatever. The effects are fine. It's the direction, I think. The direction in these movies is just pretty bad, and I think a lot of the things that people would point to as, like, feeling cheap in these movies is bad direction it's not bad effects work so like the funniest shots of gluttony in these movies and gluttony is my favorite parts and he's hilarious yes they're not funny because of effects limitations they're funny because of choices made to like have him waddle around and do crazy stuff with like big rubber fangs coming out of him and god bless them for doing that because it made me laugh very hard but no one put a gun to their head and made them be like that's the way you're gonna do gluttony in this scene or there's a moment i think in the second movie where like gluttony surprise shows up behind someone and then goes ah and kind of comes after them like the frankenstein monster and that's an editing problem because what they've done is they've not cut the scene late enough. So it starts early enough that you can practically hear the director go action because Gluttony is standing still and then goes into motion. That's not a budget issue. That's not an effects issue. That's a direction and editing issue. Yeah. Um, I know you're going to talk a lot about a scene in the second movie involving Rain. Again, that's a direction issue, not yeah. a... Because water doesn't necessarily need to be a special effect. So, like, that's kind of my overall thesis on these movies, is that the funniest, like, the Mystery Science 3000 part, and this is actually true of a lot of Mystery Science 3000 movies, Yes, is that, like, it's not necessarily just because they were cheap, it's because they were ineptly made. And those are separate, sometimes related, but honestly separate issues. Yeah, and and maybe the one of the funniest examples of this, because it happens all the time, and it's such an important thing for a Full Metal Alchemist adaptation to get right. And it just seems like they didn't put any fucking thought to it at all. Which is the clap. The clap to yes, start the cl your alchemy is such an important little detail 
if you're doing any kind of live action or animated adaptation full metal alchemist um because it's the thing that your characters do before they do cool alchemy stuff and what they've decided they seem to to have this urge to make the sound effect of the clap as realistic as possible so if you've ever heard someone wear like cotton gloves and clap their hands together and you've heard that very kind of weak muffled sound of a of cotton gloves slapping together wimply um well then you know exactly what's going to proceed every single time the that ed uses alchemy in all three of these movies because that's the sound effect they go with they don't decide to like go create some like cool either just like a clapping sound that sounds like actual like flesh hands clapping together which is usually kind of like what the anime sounds like it doesn't sound muffled because it's even though it would be realistic for it to sound like it's cloth and just muffle the sound um you want the clap to sound like a fucking clap but also the anime adds in like these other dimensions of sound like a like a twang kind of like a metallic twang almost like a sword being unsheathed sound effect which is also not realistic in movies that's not how swords being unsheathed sounds but it sounds cool so movies do it because that's what you do with your sound effects. Um, it's not just about realism. But they add that and add that kind of like resonance to the sound effect because they know it's important for this to feel like powerful and impactful because this is preceding this big act of fantasy magic that you have in Full Metal Alchemist. And in these live action movies, there's nothing about the fact that it's live action that demands you go for what legitimately often sounds like just sound from the set like i wouldn't be surprised if that's just like they had you know the mics on set and that's just what they picked up and that's just the sound effect they went with and they didn't even fucking put anything in post because it just sounds like cloth hands clapping together um they didn't bother to do anything with that sound and it's like it's so baffling i cannot fathom why you wouldn't have done something more with that sound effect You've got to juice the sound effects. This is, I think, one of the most misunderstood parts of filmmaking by people who don't, like, study it. Uh, all sound effects are unrealistic if they're yeah. good. Like, mm -hmm. good sound effects don't sound like the real thing because the real thing isn't what you want. There's a lot of noise in the world, and a good sound design will reduce that noise and then repopulate it with what actually needs to be there. You know, uh, I was showing in my, we were teaching Hong Kong cinema in my contemporary cinema class this week. So, of course, for my discussion sections, I showed the last 10 minutes of Jackie Chan's police story. Mm -hmm. Because it's a masterpiece, and if I'm going to have to show a clip three times in one day, I'm going to watch those 10 minutes of police story three times in a row. Thank you very much, because they're very entertaining. And police story, and most Hong Kong action movies of the time... They just didn't capture sound on set. There's just no on-set sound in those movies because who fucking cares? You don't need it. They redub the actors and then they put in all the sound effects because you don't actually want the sound of two stuntmen lightly punching each other because they're not actually throwing punches because that would they would hurt they would all be passed out right um and so then you juice the sound effects and you do all sorts of foley and you have these really big exaggerated punches and kicks and all that that helps you know generate the rhythm of the scene that's like a very basic principle of you know any kind of action heightened filmmaking uh or like you know sci-fi fantasy not one goddamn thing in star wars sounds like the actual thing would sound and that's okay it doesn't it shouldn't those sound effects are so much cooler than if like well what would an actual respirator for a guy who was burned and what would that sound like if who fucking cares darth vader sounds great because it's iconic and unique and original right mm -hmm. and the bare minimum for full metal alchemist is that you get a clap from a sound library that sounds cool right you don't just use the onset sound 
of two gloved hands clapping together. It's fucking hilarious when you see it, especially if you've seen any other version of Full Metal Alchemist, because it is the most basic sound effect in these movies. Yeah. No, it is one of those things where like punches and kicks and stuff is is the perfect example of where if you have ever like fuck like even in real life like if you've ever watched like you know a clip from UFC or something or boxing like everyone knows that punches don't they don't they don't even usually sound like much of anything because you're not yes hitting something with so much force that it's like fucking breaking the fucking you know speed of sound there's not a sonic boom <laughs> effect when you punch a person it usually is just sort of like some light slapping noises and in like real life it would be like the rustling of clothes because people are kind of wrestling together that's what a fight actually sounds like it's not like these big meaty thwaps like a fucking whip cracking um but that's what you want you want something that has that like really resonant big sound and it's one of the things that makes watching actual combat sports sometimes kind of boring compared to watching a movie because none of the hits like it's sometimes hard to tell did that person actually make contact because you can't really hear it even with like microphones close to the people doing the fighting um and so yeah like it's just the sound design in these movies kind of across the board are pretty bad but that is the most critical one and it makes that opening fight scene with Don Corneo so hilarious because it's the first time you're realizing, oh, fuck, okay, so that's what they're going with. Um, also on an effects thing here, here's the thing that just didn't need to be a digital effect. Ed's fucking arm. Why is his arm <laughs> a digital replacement? Like, why is that not just a prosthetic thing? You, It's actually very convenient that the design from the manga adds bulk onto the size of the arm so that it's something that you could make as an actual prosthetic thing because it's yes. bigger than the physical arm. Obviously, you can't reduce the size of the person's arm without cutting their fucking arm away. Um, so that, if it made the arm like very small and spindly or something, I would see why you'd maybe have the urge to make it a digital replacement. But there's no good reason to make it a digital replacement other than like maybe you know, some scenes where it gets broken or something like that. Um, but for all of these movies... His prosthetic limbs um, are digital replacements and they often look very bad and out of place because they don't really fit. It's one of those things where it just feels like it's not quite attached properly in some scenes. And then when it gets damaged, they play this like hilarious fucking like animated gif of cartoon electric effects over the course of the over like on top of the arm, like blue lightning. And it looks very bad. It doesn't cast any light on anything in the environment. Um, it's just this like the goofiest looking shit and it's another tragic unforced error that there's just no reason why there's no reason why it, this had to be a digital effect it could so trivially have been a, a prosthetic for this fucking movie yeah it, it should have been a prosthetic it also means that like al you just almost never see ed's metallic mm -hmm. limbs because they don't want to show it it means they literally never in these three movies do the thing where he claps his hands and makes his metal arm a sword mm -hmm. like they just never do that. I would love to see that prosthetic that they would put yes. on him. That would be super cool. And yeah, and even if it was broken, you know what you do? You have the actor tuck his arm inside his shirt. And that's it. And yeah. you know how why I know that? Because there's scenes at the end of the movies where <laughs> Ed's arm is ripped off. And you can tell the actor has his arm tucked in his shirt. And I'm not saying you can tell and it's cheap. I'm saying that's fucking fine because yeah. it's fake and it's a movie and it's okay to just play with it. You know? It's, yeah, there's a lot of baffling decisions like that. Whereas, you know, when they just go for it and make it real, like, I'm glad Gluttony wasn't a CG character. I'm so glad Gluttony is just a weird actor with a bald cap smiling and grinning. It's fucking great. 
yeah like generally speaking the homunculuses um are really well executed mostly because they're usually not digital effects or it's digital effects that are enhancing the performance like with lust the digital effects on her like fingernail things look totally good and that's the thing that yeah. makes sense yeah that would be a digital effect they do a good job with it um it's like in the homunculuses because the characters are so kind of camp anyways in the source material it translates really well it often feels like you're watching like you know power rangers style thing and you're like it's like the rita repulsa scenes in the power rangers <laughs> or whatever yes. equivalent for whatever super sentai series you're watching um and that's how the homunculuses play and that's a good time like particularly in that first movie which has a pretty strong focus on lust gluttony and envy um all three of those performances i think are really good they're incredibly entertaining they're fucking goofy as all hell but those characters are goofy and they are probably the most like sort of successful translations into live action um, in a very weird way. Yeah. I mean, they're just, I, I think Super Sentai is the right uh, comparison there. They're not intimidating in the way they ever are no. in the manga or anything, but they're fun and they're silly. Like the actor who's playing Envy totally got the assignment and Envy works very well. And there's just something about Envy's character design that is so funny to see in live action and like it's just it really is that like hot topic effect and it's great um you know i i was a little disappointed like just in the performance of wrath in movies two and three because i don't think it had any of the punch that like it has in the anime and there's no reason you couldn't have a good wrath in live action because it is just a dude there's some like fight scenes that would be harder but like just for the normal like sit down and talk i didn't feel any of the intimidation and i think that's missing but well i you know. think the performance is actually really good the problem is they cut out all of the scenes that build up his character because there yeah, are almost none of the sit down and talk scenes at all um all the stuff yeah. with his wife is cut out basically entirely like none of those lines are there he doesn't have any of the scenes with lisa hawkeye he doesn't have the sit down with ed and al after they find out about the truth and all that um so it's like they got a, i think a really good actor who could play that shit really well they just cut out all that character's material so all that's left of wrath is the fight scenes and that's the thing that like a 50 maybe something maybe even like early 60s japanese dude like he can't do that <laughs> like it's just like right. you know so if all the scenes are edited very weirdly because they have to cut around that actor or use stunt stuff um and the action is not that great anyways so with those limitations, it's even worse. And it's frustrating because it feels like that guy could have been a really good Wrath in an adaptation that was more interested in doing something with that character. Yeah. But anyway, getting back on track to the first movie, let's talk about the sort of plot structure because mm -hmm. movies two and three are just the manga with very minor cuts and revisions. Movie one is actually, because I don't think they knew if they were going to get more or whatever, mm -hmm. is a pretty like active adaptation. Everything in it is from the manga, basically, but they've rearranged it. So, you know, you start with, like, a short version of the Lior scene, which really takes out all the, like, story content of Lior. It's just a sort of fight action movie introduction. Um, and then you get into, basically, the Tucker stuff is, like, a framing sort of thing for the movie because they break it into a couple of different scenes. Tucker winds up being the person who, like, delivers Al the whole idea that Al might be a fake, like, you know, created human and then, you know, you do some of the Laboratory 5 stuff uh, and you ultimately build up to have the climax of movie one be... So you do have Hughes die in the middle and you move the climax of movie one becomes a mix of stuff with Tucker and Ed and some other characters who weren't there with the Lust versus Mustang material and kind of bring it all into a uh, final standoff. And I think there's some weird stuff here and there, 
But overall, like as a script and as a structure, I think it's a pretty smart adaptation. Yeah, it's decent. Like it's 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 something where it's nothing about it is like it's like it's interesting in a technical sense of like okay yeah like I can see you can this all makes sense and you found like different pieces of the source material to pull together. But it's like it's that thing where because the core of the story of Ed and Al and all of that is so not really there, like most of the heart of that story doesn't feel like it's really much of anywhere. It's it's no. like a it's a technically interesting adaptation that I think kind of misses the forest for the trees a little bit and how it adapts its material. I just mean on a purely plot sense. Mm -hmm. Like I yeah. can Okay, if I could take this script and put Al back into it in the right points and then have it... Like, honestly, if this were an anime movie, if you wanted to make your anime movie trilogy of Full Metal Alchemist, I could see the three scripts for these movies, like, with light revisions, again, mostly to put Al back into them, working just fine. Like, they're not bad on that level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there's some weird stuff, like, the weirdest thing is that they move up the scene with all the dumb zombies to the end of movie one and have this whole thing with a general who like wants to activate them to become God, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't need to be there and probably eats up too much of their effects budget, but it's there and it's weird. Yeah. Cause I think the problem is that like the homunculuses are interesting characters that with the plot that they've created have like no reason to be there. They're not really connected right. to anything in the main plot of this movie in any meaningful way because they've made Hakuro Shogun. They put him in here um and he's and they've made him like he's like a totally different character he's, and he's only barely in the manga um and, but that's where all the stuff with the zombies come in and that and um tucker all that is attached to ed and al's character development and all that kind of stuff but the homunculuses feel so sort of second fiddle to the rest of that even though the final confrontation in the movie is about them fighting and killing lust um, and so I think that's part of where like missing the forest for the trees comes from for me with the adaptation is like it it's smart in how where it pulls materials and how it compresses stuff together, but it doesn't feel like they fully thought through what is actually the core point of this story um, because they end with I think a smart note of with of um, uh, Mustang takes less philosopher's stone and gives it to Ed and Ed thinks about using it. And he goes and visits Truth or whatever and then decides not to use the Philosopher's Stone. That's actually, I think, a really smart ending for this movie. But I wish that they had, if instead of creating this separate villain role with Hakuro Shogun and the zombies, if they didn't do that and had the homunculuses be more central to that core threat and Ed and Al's relationship to them be more central to the movie and not have this like weird dual antagonist structure that the homunculuses are only in that structure because it's hoping it can get sequels that actually adapts the rest of the source material. If it didn't want to or pretend to or leave itself particularly open to having source materials or uh, sequels that close to the source material, it could have been so much more free to cut some of that shit out and keep the focus much more tight which is something that a really good example of this is the first Roni Kenshin movie, which is very smart in how it takes like five or six early story arcs of the manga and edits together with an original villain that they've made that assembles the material. And, but it's always focused on how does this affect the core story of Kenshin and Kaoru's relationship and tell that story with this original material to kind of guide it all along that line. And the first movie doesn't really ever of the full metal alchemist stuff never really does that. Yeah, I think that's true. I agree that that is a good point to end the movie on. Although, 
what this is an awkward thing they do also what they've done here is they've basically lifted the scene from the end of the arc where ed is stuck inside gluttony and then he goes through mm-hmm. the door at the end and he sees al's body and he promises to come back they've basically taken that and done a different version of it as the end of movie one now he's going there by choice and it's a little different but it's the same essential beat of like yes. i'm gonna come back for you but then when they get there in movie three they just do it again. Yes. And with the zombies, they've moved up the zombies. But when they get to the zombies in movie three, it's like 30 seconds of it. But they still just decide, let's just do it again, inexplicably. Um, that's more of a movie two and three problem than a movie one problem. But it's notable as like a just laziness of adaptation in that case. But yeah, I think in a, in a better version of this movie, I could see that ending being a really smart, right ending. And again, I can imagine lightly revising these scripts and then having an anime team do them and have Romy Park and Rie Kugamiya doing these lines and these movies working like gangbusters. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. honestly, if you have... If Bones, if you ever want to make some easy money and you want to do, like, a Full Metal Alchemist trilogy using this basic structure with the animation style from Sacred Star of Milos, I would watch the shit out of that. Sure, yes. Um, it would definitely be better executed than, than these films. <laughs> yes. It couldn't... Couldn't be all that much worse, but yeah. What else to say about the uh, the first movie? Um, oh, one thing we didn't talk about is the incredibly bizarre way they deliver all the flashback material. Where there's like oh, right. the opening scene of the movie has, and I hate to make fun of child performances, but two really bad child performances at the beginning of this movie of the two kids who play Ed and Al, um, who also are are laden with bad wigs for little kids, and it's like, yeah, but come on, just have to be little kids. Can um, I just say, I've made yeah. this argument before, and I will make this argument again. I don't think it's the kids. I think it's the no. direction. There's a yeah. weird moment where, so at the beginning of the movie, you have them talking to their mom, and then the mom collapses, and the two kids just look at her collapsed body off screen for a weirdly long period of time silently, and it looks like it's the beginning of a serial killer movie, because it's these two kids uh-huh. looking unemotionally at the mom's body, and like before anything happens, and I think what the director was trying to convey with that scene is like sort of shock that they don't know what to do but he has them just being completely blank faced not reacting and so it looks like the beginning of the omen it looks like these kids are like sent by the devil to kill their mom and it's very awkward and funny but that is purely a problem of editing and direction those kids didn't like do that on their own they didn't edit the movie to be that way yeah, no, it's not the kid's fault, um, but it's just like those, that whole yeah. sequence is very awkward and weird. Um, but And I can only assume that they dis- did this this way because they wanted to have the main, Rosuke Yamada, who plays Ed, play the scenes of like meeting truth and all that. And I totally get why you'd want to do that for your live action movie. But it means that they kind of split this up where then you go to the Lior stuff. And so you have the Lior stuff happen. And then you have a dream sequence where Ed, in his dream, plays out the bulk of actually the flashback stuff of like his arm and leg getting taken away during the transmutation. But because it's a dream, it's him as an adult. Or I say adult. Like in the source material, Ed is supposed to be a teenager. The actor was like 26 when he made this first movie. He's like basically more or less our age. Um, He does not read younger. They don't do anything to make him seem younger than he actually is. So, like, he just seems like an adult man, which is one of the things that makes when he goes, like, weird and has big over-the-top reactions to being called short, which he's also not particularly short. Like, no. he's, like he's like an average-sized Japanese adult man. 
Um, he's shorter than some of the other actors in the movie. He's taller than some of the other ones. Um, they don't do anything to make him seem short. So all that shit just like is weird. Um, so it's one of the things that makes this sequence strange is that he just looks like an adult man and they don't do any clever cutting with like maybe the child actor and then the camera passes over something and then it has become him when the camera comes back around, you know, tricks you've seen in a million movies to try to deliver this point they're doing of being able to sort of combine this with, oh, it's him as an adult thinking this, but this is what he did when he was a kid. Because I think if you did not know the source material, this sequence would be very confusing. Um, and this is where they get the bulk of the rest of that stuff of him meeting truth and making the deal and all that happens. And it's this weird dream sequence. And so there's this weird start and stop aspect to how they deliver the backstory at the beginning of this movie that you can work through fine if you know the source material because you don't need that information if you know the source material. But if you did not know what Full Metal Alchemist was, I think you'd be legitimately confused about what is happening after that. Of like, yes. So so Alf, Alphonse was your brother and he lost his body because like all that information is just conveyed in the most obtuse way possible. Um, and again, I get why you would want to not try to have the actual child actor do those scenes. Um, but there are much, there are much more elegant ways to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish than what they actually did. I, I really, really desperately wish they just had Ryosuke Yamada in the child scenes and just put an even dumber wig on him and had him <laughs> pretend to be a kid. That would be the funniest shit in the world to me. I would love it. It's like, uh, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia does this every so often where they do a flashback about Frank Reynolds. Who's the Danny DeVito character as like mm -hmm. a, as a, like a 20 something. And they just have Danny DeVito in a stupid wig, like pretending to be 20. And it's so funny. I want that in this movie. That's what they should have done. It yes. would have been great. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't have been the worst wig in these movies, you know? So, no. <laughs> yeah. It might not have been the worst wig Ed wears in these movies. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. No, it's, it's weird. It's awkward. Like, weirdly, I think the first movie, I think probably if I had to identify which of these three movies is the quote unquote best, I think it's probably movie two. Yes. I would say it's movie two personally. Because it's also the shortest. But, like, I also think movie two is like doesn't have an ending and is weirdly unstructured. This first one I think maybe has the most going for it, but then it has all these weird holes. It's weirdly like it has a problem movies two and three don't have where I think it's badly edited in a micro sense of every shot in the movie is too long. Mm -hmm. Every yeah. shot in this first movie, for whatever reason, it feels like an assembly cut, not in the sense of like things are unfinished. The effects and all that is finished. It's color timed, all of that. But it feels like you haven't gone through as the editor and tightened everything. Like that's mm -hmm. kind of your last step is like tightening up the performances. And it wouldn't actually be the last step, but you would do that before the effects. But you know what I mean? Like in your final like picture lock cut, you would just make sure every scene is kind of as tight as it can be. You would pull it together. You would cut out kind of dead air, things like that. And so a lot of the movie is just very slack. I, this movie is 135 minutes. I think you could get it under two hours without cutting a single scene. You would just be cutting down mm -hmm. shots. I think you could get 15 minutes out of this movie easy. Yeah, no, 100%. It just, the the movie just takes, like, it feels like it takes a very long time to get where it's going. And part of that is also the structure where there's no, like, second act action scene anywhere in the movie. Um, So it's like, you just go a very long stretch without any action. Again, this is part of the thing of where, like, you kind of almost forget that what alchemy is in the world of this movie because they haven't yes. done it since the opening scene, basically. 
um, until you get to the very end. Um, which that reminds me, of the, maybe the last thing I want to talk about with this movie is the zombie stuff at the end. Because it's so random and haphazard that they throw in the zombie stuff, which is already a pretty weak part of the source material, which they throw in here. But it has, the funniest part about it is that it's so non-consequential. Like, it gets resolved off screen, basically, where Hawkeye and a bunch of other soldiers, like, set up a kind of firing line. And the zombies very slowly walk towards it and they all fire. And then it cuts back to Ed and Mustang fighting Lust. And they do fight with Lust for a while. And then it just cuts back and all the zombies are dead. And that's it. And and it's just completely pointless. Um, and it's very weird that that was like one of the major alterations they made in the sequencing. Is that they pulled all of this that's from the end of the manga way forward. And then it ultimately feels like there was no actual reason for them to do that. Because they didn't do anything with it. They just sort of threw the zombies in there. Ed and Al punched them for a little bit and then ran away. Um, they're very, they're able to get past the zombies and go fight Lust and Envy very easily. There's not a problem. It doesn't create an issue. They don't have to do anything to get past them. They just run through the zombies and go to some other set where they go fight Ed or uh, Lust and Gluttony on a different set. While in this set, Hawkeye goes and just shoots them all. And that happens off screen. And then she just goes and rejoins them. Um, it's so weird how pointless it was. That I just don't know why they put that in there at all. I, I mean, I don't know why it's there in the manga either. So, uh -huh. like, it's just stupid. It's, you know, the, there's one kind of cool... I think that the the set, it's it's kind of half set, half CGI, where there's this big room Ed gets funneled into where Tucker is there and he's kidnapped Winry and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And above them are the zombies. And I think it's actually one of the cannier pieces of direction in this movie is you kind of keep cutting to see above, but you can't quite see what's up in the ceiling stuff until the reveal that they're zombies. And I think that's all well done. But, like... Then, as you say, nothing is done with it, so it feels pointless. I mean, all they're there for in the manga is to give Ed things to punch while he can't go punch Father. Like, it's the delay tactic because the hero can't go punch the villain yet. Um, and in this movie, it's just, it's for a scare that then just gets easily resolved. And, yeah, I, personally, I don't think the Amestrian Army had enough ammo to take out all of those. No. Because uh, they're they're working with like guns that I think have to be reloaded quite frequently. Uh, that's they they fired a lot of bullets into those fucking things and apparently didn't miss a single shot because you had to get headshots on all of them. I believe that Reza Hawkeye could do it. I don't believe she could do it alone. Yes, um, it does lead to also one of my favorite weird gaps where there's a big wide shot that shows all the bodies of the zombies and then it like cuts in close to Hawkeye and she's like. Tysa. And she has to, she goes and then runs across the courtyard where they just shot all the zombies. And then you go back to the exact same white shot with her running through the courtyard, but all the zombie bodies are gone. Um, and it's just like, it's a really bad, um, you know, weird gaff that like, I have no idea how they overlooked the fact that like, oh, all the, it's like, is this a video game? Did they all just like despawn off screen? You know, so you turn the camera around, they all disappeared and then you turn it back. And then there's just like health pickups and weapons on the ground, but all the bodies are gone. Um, it's very weird. One other thing about the first movie. I want to talk quickly about the Netflix dubs for these movies. Because okay. Netflix did dub all three of these in English. Now, Netflix has a vast array of foreign language material on their mm -hmm. service. And they do have a big dubbing house to do dubs in all sorts of languages. In fact, primarily what their dubs are for are for other countries for their English material, right? Yeah. Um, but they do it also the other way around. Like Squid Game had a dub. And their dubs are terrible. Netflix basically does the cheapest possible dubs. They frankly sound more like assisted 
hearing stuff you'll hear sometimes like if you you can activate these tracks on dvds sometimes where like they will help people who are like hard of sight um describe what's on the movie Mm -hmm. it sounds more like that like it's a technical thing than anything where there are actual performances and that's very much how the dubs in movies two and three are than more recent ones it's just it's people who i probably don't even act for a living frankly reading this dialogue terribly and they're very very bad dubs um for the first movie Mostly it's that, but for the main three characters, Ed, Alan, Winry, they did get the Funimation actors. They have Vic Mignona as Ed. Vic Mignona is not Ed in movies two and three for reasons that you can go look up if you want. They got Aaron Dismuke as Al, which is a weird choice because Aaron Dismuke was Al when he was a kid. Um, and then they recast that for Brotherhood because Aaron Dismuke went through puberty. Aaron Dismuke is a very talented actor. Um, weird choice for Al as an adult but whatever they got him and then they got Caitlin Glass as Winry and she's Winry in the Funimation dubs all of that's fine but if you haven't done this you should switch over to some scene with Ed because I swear to God Vic Mignona recorded his lines for Ed for this live action movie on his phone in a changing room at a Sears that is what it sounds like. And I'm not exaggerating. It sounds like the just the quality of the recording is very, very bad. But he is also doing it very quietly, like there's someone adjacent that he can't bother and doesn't want to hear him. And and they didn't do any like volume matching to bring his volume up. So you'll have Aaron Dismuke talking at a normal pitch and you can hear him. And then Vic Mignona will be talking almost in a fucking whisper to get his line out as Ed. And, like, they didn't, because these are such cheap, shitty Netflix dubs, they didn't do anything to, like, even the volumes out. It's fucking hilarious. It's the most amateur, awful bullshit I've ever heard. Yeah, I, since I haven't, didn't hear any of the English dubs for the anime, like, I didn't bother to switch yeah. over. Um, but I'm glad that you did so that you can, you can report on this important feature of these dubs. Because I knew that they got some of those actors in. Um, but... Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, and again, they didn't my... for movies two and three. It's not just that they didn't get Vic Mignona. It's not Aaron Dismuke. It's not Caitlin Glass. It's just their random people who read the phone book for a living doing Netflix dubs and are terrible. Not as people. I just mean the dubs are bad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, live action dubs are kind of always bad. So yeah, they're, Of course they are. Yeah. Um, anyway, but yes, let's get on to the, the movies two and three, which are really one big production. I think movie two has some energy to it because it's just it's adapting a bunch of good stuff from the manga it's got scar they they i was actually surprised that they go full in with the shing characters and everything like they bring in as much as they possibly can and they just do it all and it moves pretty well i think in general i'm a little bored with movies two and three just because they are such straight recitations of the source material that like they don't have the moments of movie one where movie one gets weird and makes other choices that kind of interest me. So it often just becomes like a shitty recitation of good source material. And there's only so far I can go with that. But movie two gets away with that much better than movie three. Yeah. Like I legitimately enjoyed movie two. I think it's got enough of the goofy shit. Like, Oh, okay. We have to cut back to Al being on the floor after Ed has gone on his weird desert adventure. You know, there's some stuff of like an, an inelegance to it that is amusing in a B-movie way. It's got enough of that while having like a much more action-y pace to it than the first movie. Because so, it's just like, it just goes and goes and goes. Like it just goes from action scene to action scene and it, it keeps it up. The plot is comprehensible enough 
if you like you have to know the source material i think that's true for all three of these movies it's the least true of the first movie though i do think it basically is still true of the first movie um you do really would need to know i think the source material to get any real entertainment out of the second movie and it is it would be gobbledygook you would not know anything about what's happening if the only thing you watched were the live action movies and you got to the third one you would have no idea what the fuck is happening in the story at that point um so if you assume that the audience has a familiarity with the basic story and the characters and all that so they don't need all the plot information is not super critical to understand the second movie i think the second movie is totally enjoyable the action's a lot better it's edited better it moves better the performances are better like there are multiple performances i think play quite well you know makinyu who plays scar is decent the guy who plays lean uh keisuke watanabe i think is very entertaining i think he does a great job as that character um there's like lots of little performances and moments like that that work well like it's not going to be the best movie you've ever seen but i was like regularly entertained by the second movie in a way i was kind of surprised by like i watched the first movie honestly in two chunks because i found the middle section of the first movie very boring so i watched about half of it and then i watched the second half the next day and i did the same thing with the third movie where i watched about the first hour or so of that third movie tapped out <laughs> it's like i gotta come back to this i can't do this and then watch the rest of it and luckily the third movie picks up at the end which we'll talk about um but the second movie i very easily watched the whole thing in one sitting and was entertained by it the whole way through yeah i uh and I, honestly with the second movie i do think on a plot level i think it gets it by well enough that if you were new to it you could follow it i think the third one is gobbledygook that's absolutely true it's a little gobbledygook even if you have seen it like what they yeah. do with greed oh my god it's gobbledygook <laughs> yeah um but like yeah and i agree with those performances i i think matt Kenyu, i and, and matt Kenyu is an actor of some renown he's he's the son of sunny chiba he's known for some other roles he was in one of those kenshin movies and stuff like that mm -hmm. um and he is i think i think the only problem i have is that i don't think he sells the physicality of scar he's yeah. much smaller than scar mm -hmm. actually is i think when he's like talking or just like staring people down it's a it's a totally good it's fine it's a good performance i think there's some like I don't think he's able to sell like the physicality of the role. I think you need someone who's less of a martial artist and more of a, a big dude, you know, like you need in Hollywood, it would be the Vin Diesel part for, yes. for, you know, full metal alchemist. But anyway, he's fine. Um, I agree about Lynn, I, all that stuff. That's, that's all good. Um, yeah. This second movie is fine. It's like, it's, it's more, it's closer to the platonic ideal of what you want your silly B movie, full metal alchemist movie to be much more so than movies one or three. Yes, um, but it does have a lot of silly bullshit in it, with one of them being a, a scene sequence that legitimately kind of like gave me a headache watching it because it was so confusing <laughs> to me until I realized what was happening, which was the fight in the rain with Scar, where the yes. rain is just an effect because nobody is actually getting wet. But it took me so long staring at the scene being like, there's something fucking wrong about what I'm looking at, but I couldn't figure it out. And I think it wasn't until Al was in a shot because since Al is a completely digital character, Al actually gets wet and he physically interacts with the rain because the rain is all digital. That it then, as like looking at him standing next to Ed, I was like, and Ed doesn't physically interact with the rain at all. It clicked in my brain of like, oh, oh my God. Like, that's right. 
Ed is perfectly dry and Scar is completely dry. And then the most like critical of all when fucking uh, uh, Roy Mustang shows up and they do the whole thing of, oh, he can't use his fire powers because it's raining. He's completely dry and he's wearing cotton white gloves that they zoom in on that are completely dry. And you know what wet cotton gloves look like because they turn grayish. They're not perfectly white anymore. But you can tell that they're just perfectly dry. I mean, everyone's hair is dry. And you can tell because they're all in like such perfect, you know, Scar's got his like J-pop band boy hair in these movies <laughs> that like is perfect. And you couldn't possibly get it wet. Um, but it is it is it is mind breaking to watch a scene that is raining so hard. But, is, but nobody's getting rained on. And it's so weird because you've been watching people get rained on in movies since movies were a thing. Right? Like this isn't a new thing. Like... <laughs> Creating artificial, like quote unquote, artificial rain, and this is of like you're pouring water on people through like holes to create raindrop like effects that predates movies. That's just fucking stagecraft, dude. So it's like them not doing that. I think the reasoning is because there's a lot of green screen stuff. Like I actually managed to see find a little clip that showed some behind the scenes stuff because I was very curious. And you can see that, like, Ed has, like, a green screen sleeve on. They've got a bunch of green screen panels. Like, it was shot on location in Italy, which a lot of the stuff in these movies are shot on location in Italy. But it has, like, green screen stuff in the background on location because some of the stuff in the background is replaced. And I suspect that that's the only so, thing I can think of that would make that difficult that you wouldn't want it, all that shit to get wet and it would ruin your chroma key. Okay, so I, I looked at this scene pretty closely because I knew it was coming because you had flagged it on Twitter. Yeah. You you came out of your Twitter cave to make a, your rare tweet. It's yes. like, see your shadow twice a year. Anyway, um, and so I knew it was coming, so I looked at this scene. My guess from looking at it is that I think Mustang's half of it is a reshoot. Hmm. I think the stuff with Ed, Al, and Scar is on location in Italy and, and actually, if you look at them closely, they are not wet enough, but Scar and Ed do have water on them. I looked really closely. They have it on their, it's like their hair is not wet enough and it's probably because their wigs and everything, they didn't get those wet. And that's the, that's the thing that feels wrong. Other parts of their body are, there is an effort to add some water to them. Mustang stuff either was just not shot on location or was a reshoot because he is against a green screen. And it's pretty clearly composited in. And he does not share the screen really with Ed Scar or, or I guess he does with Al because Al is all CGI. But they're just very clearly two separate halves of the scene. When you have Ed and Scar are up against real buildings and Mustang and his people are up against a green screen. And so I think that was either just shot separately or shot as a reshoot. And my guess is probably you don't want to get them wet for chroma keying as you said. But also because water is then a reset thing of like, if you get it wet enough, then you have to get it dry enough to start the scene over and all of that kind of stuff, right? But the problem is you have fucking, like at a, at a bare fucking minimum for the close-up of the gloves, for the joke to work about, hey, you don't work in the rain, you have to have the gloves be wet. Because he goes to, it's a big action beat where he goes to do the spark and it doesn't work. And then Riza Hawkeye comes in and grabs him and it's this big fucking zoom in on that that is just bone dry gloves and that is where it breaks my brain as well and is like what happened there but yes that is what i could tell breaking it down yeah 
Because to be clear, like in the behind the scenes stuff, and I think you're right. I think that you're almost certainly right because now I'm thinking about the behind the scenes stuff that I saw, which was like B-roll that was intercut with an interview with Makinyu that he was doing on set or whatever. Um, that, that Roy Mustang is not there. But like they were shooting it, you know, it was like Italy. It's like the middle of the day. It's like perfectly bright and sunny outside. They're not pouring water. Like the rain is a digital effect. But you are right that like there are some shots where you can clearly see that like Ed has been wet um and they've like wet his costume a little bit um but then there are also shots where they don't look wet at all um it's like it just feels like they didn't really account for any consistency or logic in how the rain interacts with the scene um and it's like particularly bad because there are multiple th things in that scene that draw attention to the fact that it is raining and they are supposed to be wet um and it is just like it is one of the weirdest things i've ever seen in a movie like it's just one of those yeah. little details where you where I've just never seen a movie get that wrong before. And it's not a thing I've ever thought about movies being able to get wrong before. It's never occurred to me that a movie could fuck that up. Like I've seen episodes of Dr. Who in the fucking like seventies that could, that did this, you know, <laughs> it's like, why could this movie not do this? I do not know. Yeah. My actually now thinking about it, what it probably is, is not a reshoot thing. It's probably that if they were on location in Italy for that, they didn't want to fly Mustang and his retinue out for that. They probably mm -hmm. had only the most essential actors in the Italy part. Yeah. So your three leads of this movie are Al, Ed and Scar. You have them in Italy. Uh, you don't have Mustang's crew and because you're going to shoot it in two chunks and bring it together you can't have rain on set because rain is irregular and unpredictable. So you have to make it a digital effect to blend the two but and that could work. That's not insane. I like other movies have definitely done yeah. that, but you would have to control the onset conditions to make it match in the end. Uh, like making the gloves wet. Yeah, that's but the basics. And it's very, it's very frustrating. But it is one. It's it's a great B movie moment because it's one of those yes. where like it's one of the things you watch B movies for is for it to get wrong things that you take so for granted that it almost feels like you can learn something about filmmaking just by trying to figure yes. out like what did they fuck up. That's making the scene so weird uh, because like I've watched a lot of movies and TV shows. They've had scenes like this and none of them have ever had this problem. Um, it's a, it's an Ed Wood moment. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> um, another sequence in the second movie that, that we've alluded to, but I want to talk about it in a little bit more detail is Ed going to Xerxes, which is so <laughs> funny because they broke the plot sequencing of it completely with the way that they handle um, all the stuff with Maria Ross in the first movie, which is fine for the first movie. You know, Maria Ross is like almost like a cameo character. She's used in a completely different way. It works totally fine for that movie that they don't do the whole thing of her getting killed or fake killed by Roy Mustang. But because you don't have any of that, you've broken the sequence of plot that leads to um, Ed getting taken to Xerxes. So instead, what they do is they have Ed meets up with Hohenheim in uh, Reason Bull. Um, and, and as we talked about earlier, this is the they've combined the two Reason Bull visits together here. So it's like he's there after fighting Scar to get his arm repaired. But now a lot of the stuff that happened the second time he was in Reason Bull happens now. So he meets Hohenheim there. They have the Hohenheim scenes. Hohenheim is by far the best performance in any of these movies. Um, uh, it's Seiyo Uchino and he fucking kills it. Obviously, he also plays father, like so good. Um, it, like it's it's the best thing in these movies. Honestly, is is Hohenheim, and then the third movie, the best stuff is how that dude plays father in a lot of those scenes as well. Um, even in the bad stretches of that movie, that guy's really good. Um, but you have all that stuff with Hohenheim, and then that leads to Hohenheim having this conversation with Pinaco that Ed overhears. And I believe this scene is from the source material, but like the context is different. 
where he, because of the source material, is meant to build up this expectation that, oh, is Hohenheim actually the bad guy? Because you, you've seen Father um, in some cutaway shots, but you don't yet have, like, the whole picture yet. Um, but it's where he says to Pinaco, like, do you know the story of Xerxes? Oh, it's this, it's the town that disappeared and it was destroyed over one night. And it's like, and, he's, and Hohenheim says, you know, something bad is going to happen to Amistris. I've warned you. And he walks away very, like, secretively. Um, and this, Ed overhears that conversation and he goes like, Xerxes, huh? And then it just cuts to him on a fucking camel wearing like a turban or some shit in the desert, like on a sand dune. Like it's, he goes full Lawrence of Arabia on this shit over him hearing his dad mention the word Xerxes as like a reference point for something bad is going to happen. Not like, oh, you should go like Xerxes in Xerxes lies the secret of what's happening to Amistris. There's nothing said that indicates, oh, I should go to Xerxes. Um, it would be like if, you know, you overheard your father talk about, like, well, have you ever heard of the story of Atlantis? It's the city that sunk in the sea. You know, something bad is going to happen here, too. And you're like, I must go discover the lost city of Atlantis to understand what is happening here. It's a metaphor. It's not meant to be taken super literally, or at least that's what you would understand from that point of view. And so that harsh cut to him just on a fucking camel in the desert, I laugh my ass off. It's just, it's so such a leap it's such an incredible colossal leap that that character would go all the way through the fucking desert on his own to go to the lost town of xerxes to for nothing like there's no reason to go there i don't know what he's looking for i don't know what he expects to find um he just decides to go there and then that's where he you know he learns all the stuff about who killed winry's parents and the rest of that sequence is more or less the same but it's such a weird way to, to lead into it yeah it's uh it's hilarious. It's I mean, that whole sequence, though, is like, it is just the laziest connection of all of these plot beats because they have to get all this information out of the way, but they didn't, like, it's the same thing with, like, Al just being left behind. There's not a ton of consideration put into how you're going to fit this all together, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, but the way it's edited together, like, there's, so funny. There's, there's better stuff at the end. Like, they work in the big scene where Scar is mm -hmm. captured and conf and Winry confronts him and, and basically doesn't forgive him, but there's the whole line about, like, you know, I don't necessarily forgive you for your sins, but I want to, you know, move on and put this behind us. And I think they do that. They pull that out of the Brig stuff, put it here in Central. Apparently, they've, they're just left gluttony in a closet for a long time, yes. which is kind of funny, but whatever. It works just fine, and I actually think it's a good... Honestly, my biggest criticism of this movie is I wish the ending were more Scar-centric and less about the gluttony cliffhanger because the spine of this movie is pretty much all driven by Scar and that gives it the best narrative spine of any yes. of these movies. And then it feels like the ending is kind of tacked on to set up the third movie and I don't think it really needs to do that. Yeah, it, it definitely, if this movie could have been a little bit more adventurous with how it's structured some of its stuff, that feels like it is the way it is purely just because it needs to set, it needs to be close enough to the manga to set up what it's doing for the third movie. Um, it could be a lot more elegant because yes, th them pulling up the material from Briggs, Scar's material from Briggs here works really well, but it's preceded by all the big adventure where they fight gluttony and blow him up and Lanfon gets her fucking arm cut off and then they're at the cabin. And so it, it it's exactly follows the sequencing of the manga up to that point and then it very harshly shifts to, oh, now we're like back in central for no clear reason. And now we're going to just do the scar stuff here. 
Um, and so it's, it's very kind of herky-jerky where if you could have massaged some of that material from the manga that leads up to all the cabin stuff and made that transition more naturally into the Scar stuff, it would have been a much better ending for the movie. Yeah, I think that's true. Then the third movie. What is... It's Ugh. just... there's. So, I think you know you're in trouble when this third movie opens with introducing Izumi Curtis and her husband, who have not even been <laughs> yeah. mentioned in these three movies yet. But now we're going to bring Izumi in. They basically just play it like like her scenes were there earlier, and we just they don't even they don't do anything special to be like, I was Ed and Al's teacher, and like this is the backstory and all of that. She's just there, and you're supposed to know who she is. And I guess if you've read the source material, you do. But in the context of these three movies, it's utter gibberish. Yeah, it's it's fucking insane. Um, as soon as the movie starts and Izumi's there and they do all the stuff with like Hohenheim and Izumi meeting and him fixing her insides or whatever. And as you say, they just do that scene. Um, they, I think they put in like one line of dialogue that like really speeds to give you the minorest amount of uh, context of I was Ed and Al's teacher and blah, blah, blah. And that's it. That's all you get. Um, and yeah, it's it's that thing where you know, if you know the source material, you know who the character is. But that doesn't help because you don't know this version of the character. They haven't done anything to set her up in these movies. Um, all of her stuff has been cut out from anything before that point because all the greed stuff, and this is also important for this third movie, all the greed stuff was cut. Um, and so all of that sequencing is gone. So just throwing her in here, it just feels like why not just not have her in these movies and just say that in this version of the story, you need four sacrifices instead of five. I don't think anyone would be particularly upset if that's it. I, you know, it's, it's not really that yeah. important that it has to be five people. I know it's like a pentagram or whatever, um, but you could, you can make it a square. You could pick it's a different fine. character. You could add someone else in there. I, you know, did they yeah. kill off Dr. Marco? I guess they killed off Dr. Yes. Marco in the first movie. So you can't do that, but, but yeah, it's just like it, the only reason she's here is because of that. Like it's because she has to be one of the Hitobashi or the sacrifices. Um, and it's so awkward. And yes, as soon as that opens up this movie, I was definitely had like this feeling of dread of realizing, oh, fuck, that's right. They got to have their fun stuff in the second movie where they just got to take a little bit more of their time adapting stuff. They just got to, you know, get all the cool action beats in and, and pace it out pretty appropriately. And then I realized, oh, they're not going to try to do significant modifications to the plot of this series to fit it all into this third movie, they're just going to try to cram every single thing that happens in the entire second half of Full Metal Alchemist because this is like it's like pretty close to how we broke um, our podcast structure. Honestly, is what this movie has to cover. Um, it's even a little bit more than that, um, and it's they don't handle that particularly well. The fact that they have to fit all this and it's the longest movie. It's like basically two and a half hours. Um, and it feels longer than that to sit through. Because it is just, they didn't like cut it down. They just try to do everything fast. Yes. And so it's just a utter gibberish version of most of this stuff. I think the other moment that just kind of kills it is when you have the scene where they all fall out at father's place and Lynn is there and, and father is like, oh, we've got an opening. And I'm like, are they, wait, are they going to do the greed stuff after never having it? Because greed is not in the other movies. We don't yeah. meet the original version of greed. None of that. So they do the greed stuff and it makes 
no sense unless you've read the manga and you know all of that stuff. And even if you have, it feels extra gibberishy because he's just not a character in this. Like, you don't learn Greed has the powers of, like, the solid full shield body until the end of the movie when he's fighting uh, Wrath and does it. It's, like, stuff like that um, that is just crazy. They have not reworked the plot enough to, like, fit into a movie shape. So the stuff at Briggs just is very fast and, like, kind of pointless. Um, anything with Sloth is kind of pointless. They do some things from the Promise Day story pretty well, but they also just, they don't have the money or the scale to really do it. So, like, instead of the fight with Sloth being the two Armstrongs and a bunch of soldiers and a destroyed building, it's just the two Armstrongs and Izumi in a big empty room. Yeah. And it's stuff like that that just feels very small and cheap. I will say, once you get into the final rush, and it's the sacrifices have happened, Father has claimed God, your big Neon Genesis Evangelion moment, then the final like hour of the movie, I think is pretty good. Because it just, it has a pretty small amount of material to adapt, and I think it does it decently. It's very centric on characters who generally worked in this adaptation, like Hohenheim. I think Ryosuke Yamada is really good in the last hour. He also yeah. plays... The younger father, and I think he's good in that role. Um, honestly, probably the better than he is as Ed. I think he gets to be like menacing, and I think he's effectively menacing. Um, and I think the last hour is pretty pretty decent. Yeah, I agree that like once they just get into where they can slow down and they just can do a proper adaptation of that material, it's totally good. Like it's it's as good as any of like the best stuff in the other movies. But it's just you have to work through 90 minutes like it's a whole movie's worth of other shit like making it feel like really if they were going to do this much if they weren't willing to cut out a bunch of stuff they should have just done fucking four movies you know like you could have done another movie that had all the brig stuff and all that in it um and it would have been fine uh because this is just brutal it really feels like that first 90 minutes watching a giant anime clip episode like it's cut like that where you're just getting only like the juiciest pieces but you're not getting any of the narrative material that connects any of it because you get all the big action beats you know fucking uh pride shows up and hohenheim fights him and they do the thing where he gets trapped in the big dome with al they cut out kimberly from this material even though kimberly is in the flashback stuff um, but I guess they decided, like, even even this movie was like, we can't do all that. So they did cut out Kimberly, but they still, so they have Gluttony break him out. Um, but it's just, it's all the, the main plot beats just sort of connected together as quickly as possible with no space to breathe, you know? Like, you have the scene where Wrath shows back up after getting, quote-unquote, killed in the um, train bombing or whatever. And he's just already on the plateau. You don't have, like, the great sequence of him slowly walking up to the castle even though he, they give him that exact line of him saying, like, this is my castle. Why should I have to go through the rear entrance? But it's like, we didn't see what entrance you took. You're just standing <laughs> here already at the top of the castle. Like, it doesn't make any sense. You don't get any of the framing, the buildup, the tension, the payoff, all of the stuff with, with Wrath doesn't particularly play because he hasn't been set up appropriately as a character none of the stuff with Ling at this point works because none of the greed stuff was set up even though they did a good job with Ling in the second movie he feels like he's just completely wasted in this movie even though he still gives a good performance i think he does a good job of like selling the difference between Ling and greed it's just that none of greed's character has been set up so it doesn't really pay off for anything so you have to sit through this just in 
excruciating big chunk of movie to get to that Promise Day stuff, which, as you said, is quite good. Um, and all the stuff with Ryosuke Yamada's performance gets so much better. How he plays, I think, like the ending with him in like truth and getting rid of the gate of truth and all that and getting rid of his ability to use alchemy, that all works super well. Like it, that section of the movie is quite good. I just wish that it could have been the ending to a movie that was much better about building you up to that point. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I feel like, yeah, if that last hour had a better first hour <laughs> leading up to it, I I might say this whole thing was actually creatively like worth it and like mm -hmm. valuable because it's just a very solid adaptation of, uh, you know, those final chapters of Full Metal Alchemist are fucking great. I'm not sure you can ruin them through bad adaptation, you know, but I think they do a good job with it. Like Ryosuke Yamada, when you get to the moment where he gets his arm back and then he realizes what Al did and he does the excruciating like scream and all of that about like he's great in that scene. Um, it plays. It just, yeah. It's the the hour and a half leading up to it. I did the same thing you did, Sean. I It was not on separate days, but I did tap out about halfway through and then come back. And then I came back and was pleasantly surprised because mm -hmm. it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. It's also like, I think the third movie has, partially because it has to move so quickly, it has the least amount of like goofy stuff to have fun with. Yes. You know, it doesn't have the funny cuts to Ed in the desert or Al on the <laughs> carpet in the hotel room. You know, a lot of that stuff's not here. Um, so it also, it, it, it loses a little bit of that B movie quality. I think that third movie, which works fine when it actually is good, but it makes the bad stuff less fun to watch. Uh, the other thing I want to say, I did not like the music in the first movie. I thought it was way overbearing and didn't sound like it fit the material that well. I don't know if they changed composers or anything. I'm having trouble finding that info, but for the second and third movies, I liked the music significantly more. I thought it was more playful. I thought it used instrumentation in interesting ways. And I think the music in like the last hour, again, genuinely is affecting and moving and, and thrilling. And there was a lot of like good, like I would listen to that soundtrack. It's good mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the final, final scene, which is Ed and Winry on the platform. It's a very straight adaptation of that scene in the manga. Again, I think it's a hard scene to ruin. It's just so good. But it's very charming. I thought through all of these movies, uh, the actress who plays um, Winry is great. And I think then you finally have Ryosuke Yamada being able to play a human enough version of Ed uh -huh. to be on her level. And it's a good scene. And they end it the way the manga does, where they uh, they use the, that full page panel of Ed. And it's it's the photo, basically, of him heading off. And they turn they kind of have that shot and then turn it into a photo. And then it kind of goes away and it says the end. And I thought that was an elegant, like fun way to end the movie. Yeah. I think it definitely, like, it makes a lot of sense to me that, like, Ryosuke Yamada's performance as Ed gets to work really well when it's the parts where Ed is written more as an adult character. Because yes. it's, it's just the, been always the awkward thing about his performance. And again, I don't think it's his fault at all, is that, like, they're still writing Ed like he's a teenager, but everything about what you are looking at reads as this as an adult. And so it just makes him seem like emotionally stunted or something in this really weird way that is like he just hasn't progressed and matured even though he's in his 20s um whereas when he gets to play like these scenes like a young adult he plays them really well um and it, it makes me wish that they had like recalibrated the character like that throughout because i think there's no reason you couldn't have done that more throughout the other movies and played down a little bit the overreactions to being called short and all that kind of stuff maybe had a reference to it in a gag but you know 
I think it's the problem with some of these manga to live ad action adaptations is I like so oftentimes that there is more of a commitment to trying to like do the material. Lots of Hollywood adaptations of material, whether it's comic books or books or video games or whatever, rarely actually really want to do. Let's take the scenes exactly. Let's take the lines exactly. Like let's try to like really reproduce lots of like the specific detail of the stuff from the source material. And sometimes, you know, you can do really good stuff and not adapt the source material pretty closely. But there's oftentimes, I feel like, missed opportunities in trying to really reflect, particularly in our comic book adaptations, because we get so much of that now, really reflect the specific material that you're adapting and find those scenes and the lines of dialogue. And let's like bring those in and really play with those specifically in a live action space. So I enjoy some of it um, when it's really close. But that unwillingness to budge on specific details that really need to be adjusted, like the age of the character, if you just aren't trying to play him younger, and you're not going to make him look younger, why still write him as the younger character? Why not adjust it? Like, if you're like, why not adjust Al's character design a little bit to make it easier to do a suit? And so you don't have to have, you know, a, be a totally digital character. Why not? adjust the hair for some of the characters a little bit so they don't need to have a bad wig when there's no real good reason for it. You know, just let Armstrong be bald. Some of those choices, I really wish that this movie was willing to make because there are times, particularly in that second movie, where it's really close to being a good adaptation, like in like a legitimately in its own right, like a decent movie. But there's too much stuff like that where it ends up kind of bending itself over backwards to try to find some way to jam as much of the material for the manga in as faithfully as possible. And it sacrifices what it could be as a movie as a result. Yeah. Well, is there anything else to say about these live action Full Metal Alchemist movies or does that about close the book on on this chapter of Japanimation Station? I think about that sums it up. Like I'm going to assume probably that most of the people listening to this didn't watch those live action movies. That's just going to be my guess. Um, you know, I think many people have watched these, particularly this, the second and third one. There's almost nothing written about them online. They don't even have their own Wikipedia pages. Nobody has even added them to the director's Wikipedia page. Um, they haven't yes. even put that in yet. So I think everyone kind of ignored those happened. But outside of some of that really bad stuff for the first 90 minutes, if you like Full Metal Alchemist, I would recommend watching them. Don't just listen to our podcast. Like, check it out. Like, I, I went in really dreading watching those movies because I thought they were going to be, like, unwatchably terrible based on what I'd heard. And and they are very entertaining, I would say. Particularly those first two are entertaining. They're not great movies, but they are fun movies to watch. And I would wholly recommend the third movie for that last hour sure. and yeah. for Hohenheim. That mm -hmm. actor and how he plays Hohenheim and Father... Um, the dual roles there. I think Ryosuke Yamada's dual roles as Ed and and father as as the young like reinvigorated father. Um, there's good stuff in here. I don't think they're a must watch or anything. But if no. you are generally interested in Full Metal Alchemist, if you're interested in like, hey, what what does like a a Japanese live action blockbuster look like? Not that these are like lit the world on fire, but they're you know big commercial mainstream movies like. It's an interesting window into a different cinema, you know, and, and all of that. They're interesting movies. I think the movie that we talked about today that you definitely should watch is Sacred Star of Milos because it's yes. really good and has great animation and all that stuff. But, you know, you can watch all of them. Since we like to rank shit on this podcast, should we rank all the Full Metal Alchemist movies? Yes. So I, I think it's easy to say that Sacred Star of Milos is at the top. I don't think any live action yes. movies uh, supplant that one. I would argue Shambhala is still number two. Yeah. I know it's imperfect, but it's got great animation. It's got the cool stuff in Germany. It's got Fritz Long. It's good. 
Yeah, it's like I I could be like a contrarian asshole and really try to push for Revenge of Scar, but I don't actually believe that Revenge of Scar is better than Conqueror Shambhal. Yes. Con- Conqueror Shambhal is definitely better than any of the live action movies. So that would be number two. Um, Revenge of Scar is an easy three. Yes, that's three. And I think this is the hard one. I think rating the, the first movie versus the third movie, the first movie is more consistent in terms of live action stuff, whereas the third movie has much higher highs to me than the first one. Um, but it also I would put the list. third movie fourth. I, I think the highs are relative enough. Like, that's what you're watching it for. It's not a complete movie. So fuck it. I think the first one goes at the bottom. But but the but the first movie has that shot where Gluttony waddles away from the camera with the big <laughs> foam teeth on him while, like, the soldiers run away in the tunnel. Like, that's maybe the funniest thing that's ever been shot for any movie ever. Um, and that's not in that's not in the third movie. That's in the first one. This is hard. This is hard. How would how would you rank them? Um, I I think I would put the third movie in fourth. I think you were right. Um, it's it's. Yeah. I I think I think we both generally lean towards the I'll take the imperfect thing that has like the higher highs than the thing that's like technically better but is more boring all the way through. Yeah. So here's our rankings. Number five, Full Metal Alchemist, the 2017 live action movie. Number four, Full Metal Alchemist. The Final Alchemy, as it's called on Netflix, it should be The Final Transmutation because the line is just quoting Ed's line where he says, this is the Full Metal Alchemist Final Transmutation. And they subtitle it right. They just change the title. Number three is The Revenge of Scar. Number two is Conqueror of Shambhala. And number one is The Sacred Star of Milos, a movie I thought I hated, but I actually really like. Yeah, you know, and I, you know, I, none of these to me are like awful, awful movies. Some of them are a lot better than others. Um, but I enjoyed watching all of those movies. Yeah. So that's that's Full Metal Alchemist. Sean, of, so we have all sorts of versions of Full Metal Alchemist out there. There's the 2003 anime. There's the manga. There's Brotherhood. And there's these movies. What do you think is the, the best definitive version of Full Metal Alchemist now that you've seen it all? I mean, it's the mangas. It's like, it's a very yeah. easy answer. <laughs> it's the manga. Like, it's, like, Full Metal Alchemist is one of those franchises where I think it is, like, my perception of it before I read the manga was that it was this like franchise that doesn't have like the perfect adaptation because it's like, cause every time you hear people true who are fans of it, try to recommend stuff to you. It's all of this weird information about like, Oh, you watch five episodes of the 2003 show and then read this, they play the Wii game. And then you watch the three episodes of brotherhood. And then you watch <laughs> this, you know, it's like, it's just one of those movies or the series that, Everyone has a different opinion on what is the best thing, how you watch it, because it has these two different anime adaptations that people like in different ways. Um, and I think it is, like, true that, like, it unfortunately doesn't have, to me, like, an ideal adaptation. Brotherhood is definitely, in my opinion, quite a bit better than the 2003 show. So the 2003 show is certainly not without its merits. Um, but none of it is as good as that as that manga. Like, that manga is a great manga, um, particularly if you like manga for the like art like the the art of sequential art meaning like how do you put together images into pages and panels to tell a story in sequence through action and movement and character like they are phenomenal examples of that some of the best manga i've ever read in that specific regard particularly in in a more kind of traditional manga style you know something along the lines of like akira toriyama's dragon ball um would be another like phenomenal example of that versus you know, Gun of the Origin is a little bit more experimental and like a little bit more unconventional in its stylings. Um, but if you want a traditional manga that really pushes that art form, 
to um, a really high level, that manga is definitely what you're looking for. And then the various adaptations are fun, if never really as good as that original is. Yeah. I think, you know, I think Brotherhood does make some specific improvements down the home stretch that are mm -hmm. not, uh, that are that are worth remembering and, and keeping in mind. But, yes, the manga is obviously definitive. If you want to experience Full Metal Alchemist, you should start there. If you want to see that thing animated, you should watch Brotherhood. If you want to see something weird and different, you should see the O3. And if you want to laugh your ass off at some B-movie bullshit, you should watch the live-action movies. And if you want some really great animation, you should watch Sacred Star of Milos. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, it's it is a it's an interesting franchise because it is very different than, you know, a lot of its contemporaries, which were things like Naruto, One Piece, Bleach, which are like eternal franchises that have gone on to produce large amounts of like new content. Part like One Piece because it's not even fucking done. Um, but you know, Naruto is kind of not done if you count Boruto. But even regardless, they have like games continue to come out. Bleach is getting its like last arc adapted, all that kind of stuff. Whereas like Full Metal Alchemist is interesting because it feels like it kind of existed alongside those things, but was able to sort of shoot its shot and be happy with that, right? It's that story is like very one and done. I I can't imagine there will ever be a Full Metal Alchemist 2 or like the son of Ed, you know, like this franchise is just not that kind of thing. And there's something very nice about about that, that it's just willing to still play in that shonen kind of pool would be its own thing and be happy with being done and move on to something else. I don't know. I kind of want to see the Boruto version of Full Metal Alchemist now, where Ed's son has to learn all the lessons that Ed learned. I don't actually know if that's what Boruto is, but I kind of assume it is. That's no Boruto. It's they legit. They do it right. They do it where it's like he's got to learn different stuff than his dad because he lives in a very different world than what Naruto grew okay. up in. Um, that's fair. Yeah. All right. Well, next season we'll be watching all of Boruto on Japan Animation no. Station. No, no, I, I I liked what I watched in Boruto, but I don't know if I have it in me to watch all of Boruto. Um, as hilarious as it would be for you to not watch Naruto and just start with Boruto, that would be fucking hilarious. We're not going to do that because we're going to do something that I have wanted to do on a podcast since before we did Weekly Suit Gundam. Um, it is one of my many plans that I have set in motion. My great the great web that I weave to get these podcasts done we are finally at the point where we can talk about some fucking fate um so so obviously we're at this end of this season but people who are watching along with us and and listening along with us you're going to want to get some get some kata no kyokai garden of sinners get fate zero get face day night the ufo table adaptations because we've got some really really great stuff ahead of us mm -hmm.